hello and welcome back to an A to Z of UK TV drama with me, Andy. And me, Martin. How are you doing, Andy? I'm good, and I have a question for you. Oh, <laughs> I always when you start the show like that, I know I'm in trouble because <laughs> I've not done my homework. I've not done proper homework. Oh no, crikey! It got eaten by the dog on the bus. Holmes, we had that I excuse last it, week. I dropped it in the ocean. Um, I would like you to know, if you looked up the phrase lotus eater in a dictionary, what would it tell you it is? What is oh, a lotus God. eater? Well, uh, funnily enough, I, I, I was looking <laughs> to, get, to, to get my, um, to get my uh, reference pages uh, ready yesterday as I was preparing in my usual preparation, <laughs> deep and important way for this show. Uh, <laughs> shit, where, where, yeah, where's Wikipedia? What, what, no. Um... <laughs> I uh, I found there was a band mm. <laughs> called the Lotus Eaters. Yes, uh, but uh, I I generally think this there there was some kind of classical reference, but apart from that, I I wouldn't have. Uh, I I think it was a, a reference to to sort of indolence and lying around doing bugger all. That's what yeah, I spending your time indulging in pleasure and luxury rather than dealing with practical concerns. Does mm. that describe us? I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Describe us. Yes. Oh, right. Are we? Oh, yeah, are we the lotus eaters? <laughs> well, I suppose I am. I am living a life of well, not luxury as such. I'm, I'm, I'm whiffing the mould on my jacket. Even <laughs> no, um, I uh, yeah. I, I think. I mean, certainly. I obviously I live this indolent lifestyle now because I'm very lucky and uh, have been able to do that the last few years. So maybe, and I am. Um, I, I I tend to think of myself more as a, a new bohemian. These Gosh, days. that sounds good. In I'm the all, sense I'm that I'm almost I am, more attracted I'm, to you now. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my I'm doing my uh, creative pursuits rather than working for demand, as it were. Yeah, to, indeed. To earn a crust. I I don't need the crust anymore. You know, people get to my age. You don't need to eat anymore. You don't need to drink. It's fine. You don't need to heat yourself. That's you just, the, it. Does sound compelling though. It's always sound compelling though. Bohemian lifestyle. Yeah, granted, if if Derbyshire was sort of in the Mediterranean, it would be slightly warmer. <laughs> so, what anyway. series are we doing today? As if well, we didn't we already are. reveal that. <laughs> yes, we are indeed. We are going to talk about a, a series that was made in 1972, or was broadcast in 1972, 1973, uh, which is set in Crete, uh, was uh, created by Michael J. Bird, uh, ran for two seasons of nine and then six episodes, which we probably come to, unless we forget about it. And it was basically called The Lotus Eaters. The Lotus Eaters being an allusion to what we've already remarked upon. Yes, and I'll just give you a bit more on that. So in Homer, in the Odyssey, mm. there is the phrase, All hands aboard, come clear the beach, and no one tastes the lotus, or you lose your hope of home. Mm. So... Basically, Odysseus' followers, well, they land on an island, don't they? And then he says, yep. no, you can't get off because if you eat that fr fruit, then you, you won't yep. want to leave. Basically, you nibble at the wrong bush, you don't want to go home again. Exactly. And that's effectively what Michael J. Bird is saying everyone who's in this series have done. Mm. They've arrived on Crete. They've thought, oh, I can get away from all my troubles here. I can mm. live here and mm. all my troubles will go away. I mean, that's a bit deeper than the. It's a bit like system. people running away to Alaska, isn't it? That's the yes, but in, in American culture, you know, people. <laughs> the idea is that you sort of get into the middle of nowhere and you won't be bothered by the world. The world won't bother you, and you won't be bothered by the world. However, what uh, the Lotus Eaters is certainly in its first incarnation. Yeah. In its first year, there are it's it's like nine standalone plays yeah. that are about 
the community living in this village, which you're going to tell me the name of. I asked Nicolaus. Thank you. Which <laughs> I like it when he does the accent stuff, don't you, boys and girls? Because <laughs> I can't do that. No. F. Harris Doe. And they're all living in, in this community. It's, it's kind of like, uh, it's funny, I went to an art community a few years ago. Oh, yeah. In America, and it's kind of like a town that grew up, you know, and, mm. and it's still very arts-based, called Mendocino, which is on the, the West Coast uh, in Northern California. And it fit, uh, has a kind of a similar vibe. These people who rocked up here are, are basically the flotsam and jetsam of society. Oh, that's a good way of putting types. it. I like that. Yeah. And they've all sort of ended up in this community, and they have this this kind of I, I wouldn't say expat lifestyle although quite a lot of them are expats uh, you know they've sort of drifted into this place and ended up there or whatever and we get nine well not really nine we get a, probably seven standalone plays that are bracketed by the life of two characters played by Ian Hendry and Wanda Ventham Eric and Anne Shepherd. Yeah, so I just want to go back to your comment about them being expats. It's interesting because, mm. as you say, they're kind of not. It's kind of almost like pre that era. Mm. I was listening to Wanda Ventum and Shepard mm. talking about the Lotus Eaters and how, well, no one was there back in 1972, and mm. she discovered it two years earlier than that, I'll tell mm. you. Um, mm. But I did also note that this was filmed in... November and December 1971. Mm. So I think it was maybe also just the fact that it wasn't the summer season. But, mm. but it was certainly much quieter then. And I've been to Ayas Nikolaus um, twice. And mm. the last time I was there, honestly, it was such a thriving, belit, um, mm. oh, throng of people of colour and of every single space of that harbour front mm. that lake front that's actually internal to to ios nicolas mm. which confused me when i was trying to find the location of shepherd's mm. bar but um it's not on the does shore does it still resemble it at all um, or has it just been all built up in the last every single restaurant is packed onto that frontage with right. with barriers for each establishment and so many chairs and tables packed in mm. there is a plaque and I, I've, there's a picture of me with the plaque about the oh, Eaters. Yes. Which you are going to post later. I shall. I shall. <laughs> but you were going to say something. Was I? <laughs> <laughs> I lost me thread. It doesn't matter. Um, I, that's, actually, I have remembered what I was going to say. What I was going to say was what I remember most about my... I think I, I've been to Greece twice. Yeah. I've been to, uh, I, both times I've been to Cod. So it's not Crete. It's Greece that I've been to. But the interesting thing was that the first time I went, I went on the very last week of what they recognise as their tourist season, which was in October. Yeah. And basically, it was the most generous week because they're all trying to get rid of the stock. <laughs> Oh, good. So people kept you kept walking into bars, and the barman would just sort of say, "Free drinks all round," <laughs> and you'd sort of go, oh, "Brilliant!" And you'd buy one, then they'd give you another one free. And so, so you had, you'd end up having about six drinks, and you'd only paid for one. <laughs> My favourite though was I was in those days. I was a whiskey drinker. I used to drink uh, Jameson's whiskey. Yeah. And when you go to a bar in Manchester and order a Jameson's, you get your sixth of a gill hmm. or Jill, if you prefer Jill Gill. Jill, I think. But yeah. You get your sixth of a jill. You get your, it's all almost wets the bottom of the glass, and you sort of look at it and go, "Thank you very much." And I um and I went into this bar in, in Greece and sort of said, "Oh, I'd like a Jameson's, please." And he got this tumbler, and he just and I got about half a pint of whiskey. <laughs> you were doing an Ian Hendry. That's what you were doing, which made for an interesting evening. <laughs> 
So in that sense, if your liver really wants some serious damage, which again is quite appropriate to what we're going to talk about, <laughs> yeah. um, then it's the place to be. Go to Greece in October. Good tip. But of course, uh, that's all Greece. This is Crete, which is probably a very different... Uh, I don't know. Very different. Do you know the original planned location for the Lotus Eaters? I do not. So originally it was going to be Ibiza, which is a horrible oh, thought, but that's before it became the horrible party island it is now. Yeah. Then Majorca was in the picture. Then Gozo, which is off Malta. Finally, oh. they settled on Crete. But, I um, went to the Balearics when I was a kid, and that would have been about 1970, 75, 76. Yeah. I, wouldn't have, I mean, Ibiza then wasn't you know, the wild party island. No. It was, it was where my mum and dad took me for a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know. I mean, I don't know what they were getting up to. What's they say? Right off to bed, Mark. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Holmes <laughs> raving. Blowing the whistles, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I doubt it. Yeah. So I just want to fill in some of the Michael J. Bird history, if I may. You um, may indeed. So, creator Michael J. Bird, I'll recommend one volume to you, which is by David Rice, and it is Michael J. Bird, The Life and Work of the Man Who Created the Lotus Eaters, which oh. I think you can buy from Lulu. Not from Lulu. the singer Lulu. <laughs> I don't no, no. think this isn't. Oh, she's down the market selling them books. <laughs> yeah, she sells all these but weird oh, books. Oh, from the back oh, of yeah. Freeman's catalogue. <laughs> Lulu, sing, shout. Um, no. um, hey, Lulu, why do you look so good? I bought this book. <laughs> um, independent. Um, so, <laughs> the man with the golden book. <laughs> Lulu. Anyway. Oh, he's got a jolly big volume. <laughs> the boat that I row has got no boats. <laughs> Books, even. Um, oh, we're supposed to be sensible people. Stop it. Right. It's a very good book. And I shall be quoting extensively from one oh, section well, of it a little later on. That's not me doing any research, so that's good. Yeah, well done. Um, but he also produced lots of other series. Before he got into the BBC in a big way with the Lotus Eaters, he had done episodes of Danger Man, Mr Rose, Journey to the Unknown, Paul Temple, Out of the Unknown, lots of unknowns, something called Brett with Patrick Allen that I'm intrigued by. It's about a journalist. I don't know anything about it. And the Aneedon line he did an episode of. The Wandins. Wandins. But then, yeah. He got the Lotus Eaters, having gone all the way around the houses trying to sell it to every single... Well, there were only a few channels then, wasn't there? But um, I, <laughs> To both of the channels. To both of the channels, exactly. Well, that was our day's work, getting rejected twice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was... Associ- yeah, maybe, maybe Scottish television. Oh, yes. I think it was... Asso- that being set I think, on the Hebrides. I think it was Associated Red Diffusion. Is that how you say it? Red Diffusion? Mm-hmm. Who Red Diffusion, Red Diffusion, depends. Do, 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 yeah. do. They turned it down. Eventually... Oh, no. BBC, but then it wasn't BBC One, it was BBC ah. Two. Ooh, so interesting. this is a BBC Two drama series, and yet... Suddenly much becomes clear, because there's a lot of wobbly bits. Ah, so you think that's to do with it being BBC Two? Interesting. Um, mm. Later, on on the back of the success of the Lotus Eaters, you'd think, oh God, immediately successful, oh, we'll move straight on to mm. other projects. There was a bit of a gap, to be quite honest. Um mm. He wanted to do a sequel so- series called Chrysarchis about the right. police chief who will come to, but the BBC were interested. Mm. Um, so later on, he went on to Who Pays the Ferryman in 1977, mm. The Aphrodite Inheritance in 79, mm-hmm. Dark Side of the Sun 1983. So with together with the Lotus Eaters, they're his Greek mm. quartet. Mm. And then we have Maelstrom, which I've mm. reviewed for around the archives, which was in 85. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the midst of that, you know, loads of 
single episodes and various episodes mm. for things like Warship and stuff. But the thing that I love him the most for is he actually wrote my favourite episode of Secret Army. Ah. Which is Bridgehead, which is the episode in which Monique is rounded up in a cage for and oh, that, for yeah, that was he, was it? Yes. I hadn't realised. I hadn't made that connection at all. No, no. Anyway, there's loads more about Michael J. Bird, which we're not going to fit into this podcast mm. in that book about his life story. And so when we do our Michael J. Bird special... <laughs> Well, I'm very keen to come back to Who Pays the Ferryman because it's actually mm. my favourite of the quartet. Right. Mm. Yes. Google's, how much is that going to cost me? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've already touched on the fact that Ian Hendry liked to drink. <laughs> A little bit. Should I, I should, should I do the DVD back? I did actually. This is the interesting thing. I watched all of it, the whole series, the whole 15 episodes on YouTube. Yes. The tube that is you. Well done. Uh, uh, but uh, I was I was mildly impressed, so I, I did go and try and get the uh, the series. Uh, the, the first series was a lot more available than the second series. Ah. The second series you can buy reasonably cheaply. Mm-hmm. I haven't yet, but I have bought the first series okay. so um, on on disc. So I do actually have the the notes from the DVD that I can read to you in my usual inimitable okay, <coughs> style. Okay, so go for it. it. Well, it basically has a headline. <gasps> Uh, it's a headline from the Daily Telegraph, so we can only take that with a pinch of salt. It's <laughs> tantalisingly watchable. That so sounds like so many of the quotes that I used to find for DD Video back in the day, mm. where they really had gone through loads of things to find mm. something that they could possibly use. Mm. But You've got to understand here that the Daily Telegraph probably finds Liz Truss tantalising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not really a recommendation. Is it? To eat the fruit of the lotus is to lose the desire to return home. Yes. But everyone who does has a reason. Shepherd's Bar, or Shepherd's Bar, if you want to read it off the signs. <laughs> silly, silly boy. Because of the nature of the, the, nature of the Greek alphabet. Uh, Shepherd's Bar is a focal point for a group of expatriates, so there we go, living in and around a small town on the island of Crete. The bar is owned and run by reformed alcoholic Eric Shepherd, with a K, Ian Hendry, for Eric, temptation is never far away, and his faltering marriage to Anne, Wanda Ventham, provides little solace. The arrival of Englishman Donald Cully, James Kerry, causes something of a stir. Cully is charming, handsome, and by his generosity, he quickly wins over other members of the little community. But Cully knows that the long-suffering Anne has a secret of her own, a secret that could prove far more destructive, far more... I've got a bit Gandalf, but far more destructive... You have, you've got a bit... You've got a bit space soldiers as well, if I'm honest. <laughs> far more... De- <laughs> Far more destructive. Sorry, you must be there. Far more destructive. Far more destructive than Eric's drinking three dots. Never before available. Oh, anyway, We've already intimated that Ian Hendry liked to drink, but this series is marked so strongly by the fact that it was kind of life imitating art. Hendry had drinking problems. He had marriage problems. Just before mm. he went into the first series, he um, he got mm. divorced despite the fact that he'd actually put up his then wife, Janet Monroe, to be mm. the Anne Shepherd part, uh, they decided that right. would be a big mistake given everything that was going on. But I just mm. want to read you an excerpt mm. from a biography of Ian Hendry by Gabriel mm. Hirschman called Send in the Clowns. And this is about him getting mm-hmm. the part for of Eric in The Lotus Eaters. So I shall just read mm-hmm. this to you. 
And it's written, this is from the perspective of Anthony Reid, who we all who we all know as the ah. script editor of Key to Time. <laughs> mm. Poor chap. He's like, I did so much else and he's being called out as the script editor of Key to Time. <laughs> well, he produced, didn't he? he produced the first series. Yes, he? he was the producer of this first series. Um, this is this is Anthony Reid. Previous experience with heavy drinking actors left me with all sorts of dire doubts. However, out of friendship, I agreed to meet him and discuss it. We had lunch together, just the two of us in Golders Green. It went very well. It was great being with him again, and he drank abstemiously, admitting that he had a drink problem, but promising me it was now under control, that he was having treatment and was off the hard stuff for good. At the end of the meal, I accepted his promises to behave and told him the part was his. Delighted, he suggested we had coffee back at his house. We were in separate cars, so he said he would see me there. Oh, and would I mind stopping off on the way and picking up a bottle of brandy? (laughs) (laughs) Reed continues. I suppose I should have called the whole thing off at that point, but I thought that I would be able to keep Ian under at least some control, if only because of our personal relationship, Mm. and I believed he would be so good in the part that it would be worth it, as indeed it was in the end, more or less. Mm. So, Mm. yes... Tonight I shall have a headache. I can feel it coming on. I shall insist Paul goes into Eroclion alone. I wouldn't want to spoil his evening. Well, that's very considerate. Tell me, Mrs. Inneman, are you buying or selling? Good morning. Ah, you haven't met. Uh, my wife, uh, Mrs. Inneman. Hello. Mrs. Inneman and her husband just dropped in to settle up for yesterday. You didn't have much luck, I hear. How disappointing for you. So frustrating. Perhaps you were using the wrong kind of bait. I'll take this out to my husband. Not bad, I'm surprised. Are you listening? I overheard. Such an offer and you turned it down. That's a little out of character, isn't it? She was too obvious. And that's something you have to watch. Ian Henry, really good actor. So good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, Some people might know him right the way back to the Avengers and even earlier than that. But um, he had one of those careers that sort of never really lived up to its potential, didn't he? It it was kind of... And again, we think possibly this is mostly because of the drink, really. I mean, I see a a parallel with... I see a parallel directly with Carolyn Seymour, um, who was Mm. the highest paid actress with the BBC when she Mm. got Survivors having done the films and mm. worked with Peter O'Toole and everything, but she mm. was effectively mm. sacked because of the drinking, which didn't come to light mm. when I did the DVDs, but much later. But she, too, could have been a big star. Mm. But when you read anything about the BBC and how it functioned in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> even into the 80s, everything Yes, it's no surprise, is it? It's just they... So it's kind of slightly hypo- hypocritical when if it. But I if think were that shows the, the level of excess I mean, that both Ian Hendry and Carolyn Seymour were... Yeah. You know, I mean, I was briefly involved with um, uh, amateur dramatics, you know, and the amount of drinking that went on. Oh, sure. Even in that. But and they and the ones who had sort of the people there who had touched with professional acting. The, um, they, the, you know, the amount of stories you read about actors in their biographies about how they sort of I mean, you think about something like the Sweeney. You know, basically, they would go to the pub at lunchtime and stay there all day. Well, just like just like Doctor Who. I mean, they always the tales are about Tom Baker entertaining everyone at the pub, aren't they? After the filming, mm. yes. So, yeah, that's an interesting bit of colour that runs along the series. That you're thinking, what mm. point is he at? Between series one and two, mm. his wife actually died, mm. and okay. his ex-wife, but he was still in love with her, so it was horrible. Mm. So when it comes to mm all the deaths that happen, the murders in this series, that kind of 
he mm. really was in a, an emotional whirlpool or whatever you want to call it, maelstrom. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for. But actually, that channels into yeah, what you see on screen. Absolutely. Actually, I think that actually probably helps the performance. I know it's a no, terrible it's thing true. to say. <laughs> You know, I think it does help the performance. You know, you can yeah. see that suffering, you can see that that pain, uh, and in, to to know not not all of it is just acting is is is. Well, it's, yeah. it's I find it interesting that Wanda Ventum is like his fiercest supporter, and says it never took away mm. from the work. And you know, mm. there's that interview that's available on YouTube where she's from the DVD. Mm. I think Marcus mm. Hearn directed it, where mm. she says, mm. you know people would ask me to make him stop and they'd call me down in the evening to say, oh, mm. can you make him stop now? Mm. He's had too much. And she'd be like, mm. no, because I need to sleep. I'm not going to get involved in this now because mm. my performance will be affected tomorrow. Mm. And I know that he'll wake mm. up and he'll be fine. It won't, it won't have touched the sides and he'll, mm. <laughs> he already performs me off the screen. I'm not going to give him any further advantages, you know. Um, Mummy Cumbernuts was um, basically at that point, I, I, I suppose he'd, I mean, what was her, her prior work to to that? And she'd just come off UFO, a couple, of, but that was a couple of years earlier. I was really trying to work out what you were saying there. You need to explain that to people who don't know her um, her parental role. <laughs> what, Mummy Cumbernuts? Yes, that's not obvious to everyone. I had to really think about what you just said then. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch's mother. Continue. Indeed. Yes. Although I suspect not not at that point. But um, yes, yes, they they met. Just before the Lotus Eaters, and of course he's mm. in series two, Timoth- Timothy Carlton. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. So, so yes. So, um, I was just really wondering where, uh, what she'd done prior to this because she's uh, you know, she's very glamorous. She's an incredibly glamorous actress. I was just trying or actor if you prefer, but she just came in from this. Like I say, I knew her. Nineteen seventy would have been UFO. This was seventy one. What I was just trying to work out what was in between. She did. She did loads of those sort of series, you know, that were around mm. in the sixties. The and there's an episode even where she plays his love interest, Ian Hendry's love interest, mm. in a series called The Gold Robbers. So mm. they knew of each other. So it was an easy casting in the sense that they mm. both liked each other and they both thought it was a good idea. I had a question for yes. you actually that that struck me while I was watching this. Do you think that Wanda Ventham's appearance in Image of the Fendal <laughs> yes. was was because they needed someone who looked good with both dark hair and blonde hair? <laughs> Possibly. And they thought, who do we know whose hair, who, who performs in both hair? <laughs> but I think she looked... Do you know who she reminds me of in these flashback sequences? Which we'll oh, get to. yeah, we will get on She reminds me of Liz Shaw in Inferno. Yes! <laughs> You are Anne Chernick. You are Anne Chernick. Yeah, they've got some Avengers stuff going on as well. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yes. It's very much the, the flash. Uh, yeah, we should come on. To well, the before point, we get but, before um, we get onto that, I want to mm-hmm. read from the format document, if I may. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Golly. Absolutely. The Lotus Eaters is a thirteen-part series originally, so they cut four. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. setting is the island of Crete, principally in and around the small town of Ias Nicolas. The series is concerned with the lives of a number of people from widely differing backgrounds, but with one thing in common, they are all expats. Mm. Each of them, for one reason or another, has escaped the island. Who are they? Why are they here? Well, sorry, why are they there? What are they running away from? What new horizon did they run toward? What is their relationship Mm. to the island refuge and to one another? Just Mm. how much is their present shadowed by the past? This is what the series is all about. Ah. Yes, because it is an anthology, isn't it? It really yes. is an anthology. Um, yeah. 
But it goes on to say in lots more detail, which I won't read it all out now because mm. this episode will be three hours long. But under the theme, it says, The dream is to renounce the world and all its ills, to throw off convention and becoming a painter, a writer, or simply to run for cover and find a sun-soaked refuge. These mm. are the Lotus Eaters. But for most... This is in capital letters, by the way. So obviously Michael J. Baird thought this was terrifically important. For mm. most, the island is an illusion. There is no escape for you are what you are and run as hard and far as you can. It's your shadow which runs with you. Ooh. Yes. And what they say at the end, for aliens in a foreign land, the global group becomes very important. The focal point of their new lives. The group may seem loosely knit. It demands no entry fee, no annual subscription. But through it and within it, membership establishes a new set of conventions, a new set of rules, a new society. Examine this society closely and it doesn't look much different from the one they ran away from or rejected. Mm. The Lotus Eaters are a microcosm of the world from which at times we all dream of escaping. The Lotus Eaters are you and me. Ooh. Oh. Now, I think that takes things a bit far, quite honestly. I think he's taking the piss yeah. at that point. Because... We're not the Lotus Eaters because we haven't gone to Crete or anywhere else. Mm. If you do run away, then mm. I think that illusion still applies. But beyond that, mm. I think it's... Well, most of us plod on with our lives. Yeah. And we may we may have the odd daydream, but actually this is the people who actually... I mean, again, it's interesting because we're at the start of the 70s here. Yeah. So the, the, the hippie culture, the hippie trail, the whole... The whole sort of yeah. European travel is really very in its infancy for for the majority of the British people. Yeah. You know, foreign travel was still quite expensive, and and, and it was you know it's coming down, and you know the international uh, what charter flights were starting to come in, but but people people's idea of holiday even as late as sixty nine was probably Blackpool or South End or something. You know, it wasn't it wasn't we didn't do foreign travel really until the 70s kicked in properly uh so this is kind of like playing with that the rest of the format document there's a lot of detail mm. about eric and anne and their life on the mm. island the fact that they've been there since 1965 but it does mention some mm. other running characters four principally mm. and none of the um none of the actual ones who make up the the individual sort of anthology episodes but mm. katarina papadakis nikos sefakas and mm. Captain Michael Krasakis, who we all know. Mm. But we've also got Dimitrios Markoulis, who is a small right. neat man in his early 50s, who runs a great deal of the charter work for right. his boat. He runs a travel and tour mm. agency, but he was dropped. Um, mm. But then the rest of it is kind of vague about the, the characters and people. But there are some... As with every running series, he as the creator has come up with ideas for storylines, which the writers then mm. pitch to. So the episode mm. about the Woolies is there. The episode about the the um, the spinner longer and this must be part of it, and various and the the Mervishes who will come to. But yeah, anyway, it's just interesting. If you want to find out more, it's all reproduced in the, the, that book that Lulu sells down the market. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, there were a, a few sort of cinema films but also stage plays where a disparate group of people would end up in the same place yeah. i mean even if you think of a film like um key largo you know where all these people end up in a, in a in a hotel when the storm's happening you know there's that structure and what we get in episode one is we do get introduced obliquely to most of the characters who will feature in the series yeah. uh but but i mean i remember watching I say a cold wind from the north 
and I heard a voice. I heard a voice. I heard a cry. <laughs> that was me. I heard me. a voice. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a voice. That was me. I, I know that voice. <laughs> and I didn't actually recognise, because I wasn't looking at it with notice or anything at the time. Uh, I hadn't realised. I thought, I know that voice. It's Morris Denham. Mm-hmm. And he, ha- he has such a fleeting moment in the opening episode. Yeah. It was a couple of fleeting moments in that opening episode where you don't... I didn't realise it was him. Uh-huh. Which is interesting because Morris Denham, as we know, very classical very actor, and he's playing against type as this uh, shattered, broken artist. And I thought, oh, I, yes. I can relate to him in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> he was your character, was he? I'm afraid so, yes. <laughs> so... Coldman from the North, episode one, which sets everything up. Mm. Should we get into that and, and our reflections and insights on the episode? Well, I, I would actually say it, it it would start it starts with the title sequence of the boat coming along, and I genuinely didn't realise that was the title sequence. I just thought this was travelogue footage. It's, it's only when it got used every other week, you know. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. And Eric is actually he gets off his boat and trudges across the forecourt. Is a, a couple of a group of Greek gentlemen drinking at eight o'clock in the morning, whatever. It no means. tourists. No Sorry, tourists. Cretan, I should say. No yes. tourists whatsoever, and he sort of gives them a surly wave, so so we know he's part of the community, and then goes yeah. into the bar, which is two thousand miles away in London. <laughs> well, yes, we do get is... Crete in the studio, which sometimes works better than others, shall we say. Yeah, but we don't worry about that. We're used to old TV. Come mm. on now. No, no, so... I, I get that. I, I just, I thought it was interesting that they, that what they did to try and match that was actually very smooth. You know? Yeah, I think so. But and also, it was, it was a disused shot, by the way. It wasn't actually. They used it as a mm. prop store, I think, while they were out there. Mm. Um, yes. So. You have this German woman who's mm. flirting with Eric, mm. and she's she's too obvious for him. But you get the idea that he's a bit of a player, he's a bit of a ladies' man. Mm. Can I ask you, how old do you think Ian Hendry is at this point? Um, well, I would because I well I know he was only about fifty four when he died, so he must, yeah. have, must have been in his early forties. Yes, he's only forty one. He seems so much older to me. But well, then maybe that's you know, the, maybe that's the seventies, or maybe it's the drink. Well, I think I think the the uh, the Breton top and and cardigan. <laughs> combination <laughs> might not what? I think he looks quite smooth in them bless his heart there is a slightly troubling time in uh, in episode 2 when he's he's basically got his shirt off for a large chunk of time <laughs> uh, I didn't watch episode 2 this time uh, thank god <laughs> and, uh, yeah that, that's, that's not the most flattering shall we say <laughs> anyway um I loved when they were called the Good Shepherds. Someone mm. called them the Good Shepherds in episode one. Mm. And it's the, this idea that they're kind of looking after everyone in the community, mm. that Taverna is home for these expats mm. and they're kind of caretakers, mm. but also almost curators of this group. Mm. And there's times which I really loved in the first series where that community feel, which I think Michael J. Bird was really going for, really worked. And there's other times when you think, oh, well, where where are they? And why have they not been in it for weeks? And why have they not had a line? And mm. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm. And that's this issue of having a, a melting pot of running characters that you're not going to see very much. Mm. And sometimes someone has prominence, sometimes they don't. Mm. But I would have liked more from all of those regulars, mm. personally. Well, I think the... I mean, obviously, there's not a great deal of time when you're trying to tell a story around to, to sort of give them their moment, but they do get them. I mean, again, you, you sort of see Thorley Walters and um, and Sylvia 
Coleridge on the credits, and you think, well, they're going to play a huge part. And again, they have this yeah. throwaway tiny scene, really. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. sets them up. I mean, their, their story arc across four episodes is set up. You get little moments of it, but it is yeah. it is kind of weird because the names that you're seeing on the credits barely feature at, at yeah. first, and that's disconcerting. I believe you uh, do a lot of clay pigeon shooting, Major. Yes. You shoot? Well, I'm I'm interested. Perhaps we could uh, have a talk about it sometime. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that is called getting your foot in the door. <laughs> um, so this first episode is about Sid Heyman arriving at the island looking for her brother. Mm. And we find out ultimately that he's a heroin addict mm. and he's already died. Mm. They're too late. Mm. But the main reason for this is to make is just to show up the problems in the marriage between Anne and Eric. And the fact that he lets her put her foot in it and when she finally says, oh, you know, well, she doesn't know that he's dead mm. and it's an awkward moment. But um, in and around all of that, there's this fact, these brilliant little flashbacks that happen, which really surprised me when I first watched it. Yes. That, that Anne is actually a sleeper agent. She's actually, so, so they keep cutting in snippets from the Avengers, which is kind of Yeah. <laughs> At least it feels like that. Suddenly you get these black and white sequences where mm. she's wearing a short, black wig or, or dark wig and I think it is Caroline John's wig from Inferno <laughs> <laughs> possibly, yes, possibly I mean it is the BBC after all you know it, it may even be her outfit <laughs> <laughs> yes oh my god what have we uncovered what is your name my name is Anne Chernick I was born in Prague on the 3rd of January 1937 my father was Joseph Chernick born in Pardubica in northern Bohemia in 1906 he was a lawyer my mother was English, Catherine Wade. You are lying! Jesh! Jmenuji se Anna Černíková. Narodila jsem se v Praze 3. ledna 1937. Můj otec byl Josef Černík, narozený v Pardubicích v roce 1906. Byl právník. Moje matka byla angličanka Catherine Wadeová. You are now Anne Černík. You must think like Anne Černík. You must act like Anne Černík. You must be Anne Černík at all times. We will establish a cover for you that no one can break. It is important that you marry. We have someone in mind. His name is Eric Shepard. Fought in Korea, captured and badly treated. Since then, he's gone to pieces. He's weak, unreliable, and totally irresponsible. He's an alcoholic. But I think that the fascinating thing about that is that because it turns out that so Wanda Ventham is a spy. She was a spy. She's a sleeper agent. Uh, but she's also, have, have you noticed in that scene where the very first time when uh, Cully comes into the bar, she's doing people watching. And, and that's sort of, and she can work out people's lives and what they are yeah. about and what purely from you know what they drink and how they act in the bar. And I think that is kind of fascinating. That's actually saying she's actually much more astute and much more people watchy, and therefore the spy training is proving useful in bar in, in bar in situations. Bar yes, there was one um, phrase I really wanted to bring out, or one mm. quote, which was when they were talking about the world is falling apart and hiding mm. away won't change things, mm. which I think is something that I keep 
coming back to at the moment is mm. is that the world is so terrible today mm. and hiding away from it doesn't change things and mm. i i just think it's interesting that everyone was feeling that everything was terrible back in 1971 mm. 72 as well you know mm. and it's like that's 50 years ago and that was that was before we joined the eu <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but we come back to this nihilistic conclusion that, that we always have in A to Z that everyone always thinks that it's the worst time ever and mm. nothing ever improves. Mm. Well, I, and, I, and it's absolutely true, you know. But I, yeah. I think you get some. There's some interesting foreshadowing goes on in yeah. in episode one specifically. Uh, Anne starts to have this very flirty relationship with uh, Donald Cully, mm. and is obviously tempted. And we get these flashbacks to when. When I mean, it's weird because the shocking thing now is, uh, well, I mean, at one point Eric slaps the waitress's ass, yeah, uh, and that all and that's perfectly normal in those terms. But now you think, oh, that's a bit, you know. And equally, he belts her across the face in one of the flashback sequences about when they're talking about the troubled marriages, yeah. Yeah. marriage, I should say, and uh, and there's a lot of that kind of foreshadowing going on but basically we now know she's really unhappy you know yeah but uh they, they go off she takes this this donald chap off sightseeing and they go to a church mm -hmm. which is her church i think I, I suspect that's a bit of foreshadowing for where she runs away to in the final episode i'm not sure it's yes the same church. yeah absolutely but, but I, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I noticed I tweeted this at the time, that there seemed to be jo uh, John Hurt's War Doctor was one of the paintings on the wall. <laughs> no, I didn't know. Okay. There's a painting that looks very much like John Hurt. But in, oh. interestingly as well, within the story, the, the, the episode, you get a parallel of the hippies, uh, you know, the, the hut that he was living in. Where yeah. he's painted on the walls as well, and I thought that was a really nice parallel oh, of the yes. two stories that was just Good going word, on Martin. within that within that one episode. You get you know, you got the the culture of, of painting on walls in churches, mm. and then you've got the well, people consider it vandalism. You know that you know, that hippie culture with with the odd slogans and the odd paintings and the sort of sexual yeah. paintings that that were sort of being popping up in New York and around the world generally mm. from that from that culture. And I, I just thought the two paralleled quite nicely, without yeah. necessarily well, making I, a big point. You know? yeah. I did laugh about the fact that I was thinking that Anne really doesn't know how to show a man a good time, does she? She just, I'll take you to a church. He's <laughs> like, oh great, good. <laughs> Well, you see, the thing is, she 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 knew he was he was there was something more. He was he was a, a deep cover agent for one side or the other. She so, so I'm going to have to shoot you one day. She's thinking. <laughs> I don't think so. They share a kiss, um, but and she even says she she thinks she could love him. By the way, I have I take issue with the idea that he's attractive. He's one of the most deeply unattractive men I've ever seen. So there you go. But um... <laughs> do you think it's interesting that? The guy who comes in, in in the second year as his kind of follow-up agent wears exactly the same clothes. It's horrible. That sort of horrible there are beige. so many. There are so many ugly forty to fifty-year-old men in this in these two series that it's untrue, and there's just too many of them. <laughs> Far too many of them. It's such a white patriarchal series. Mm. Poor Wanda Ventum having to deal with all these ugly idiots. Anyway, um, so. It turns out that Cully has a, a more ulterior motive, mm. and that is that he's come to activate her when he mm. says. <gasps> and and also the fact that, you know, the marriage is effectively a sham. She was married to Eric. He was chosen for her because mm. he was a drunk. 
Mm. And therefore, when it came to her being activated, it would be more easy for her to leave because mm-hmm. she was going to have a terrible life. So they condemned her mm. to 10, ten years, years of hell. hell. Yeah. But that's really dark and a really mm. weird decision. And I'm thinking, is this a true Secret Service sort of approach? Mm. It's quite odd. It seems it seems very contrived. I think the spy stuff actually seems like I, I, that that you've got this anthology thing going on about life in in Crete. You've got this background spy story to, and I sometimes feel the two don't quite mesh. You know. Well, it's interesting because I think Michael J. Bird is uneasy about it, as mm. were the producers, because mm. Michael J. Bird said oh, it was only ever a sideshow. This mm. this sleeper agent business. Mm. And he gets into real arguments with Andrew Osborne when it comes to series two, because he doesn't want series two to be a spy drama, but Mm. it has to be because he's got no other content. Mm. Um, But he only really puts it in there as as a way of showing that Anne is also running away from something. Mm. She has also got secrets, Mm. but it shouldn't be more important than any other secret. But ultimately, Mm. the Lotus Eaters becomes about this more than about anything else. Mm. Well, series two, the the six-part series two, is basically the fallout from what happens at the end of series one. And it's all a spy story, really, when all said. Yeah, it is. Anyway, we anything else we want to say about episode one? Yeah, there were a couple of things. The the one that got me was the the two Americans, the brother and sister, who feature later on in in an episode of their own, which which shows their true colours and their manipulation. But the the sequence where the, the... uh, the the woman is being particularly horrific in the bar. Yeah. Is 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 a fascinating bit of foreshadowing of how horrible they are. Because actually, they get a lighter moment in a later episode, which makes you think, oh, maybe they're not all that bad. But they're just horrible, nasty people. Oh, they're so nasty. They're called Lee and Philip mm. or Flip Mervish. Mm. She's played by Carol Cleveland. Mm. Is that her off Monty Python? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And, and he, funnily enough, he, the, one of the things that also struck me about that episode was the bar itself. I got slight vibes of Faulty Towers, but, you know... Yeah, yeah, just, no, absolutely. Mm. And Carl Held is um, Flip Mervish. Mm. But they are just the most horrible people, mm. egregious, and I don't know why Anne and Eric put up with them. <sighs> yeah, he's a nice guy, Don. Real considerate. Do you know when we left here last night, he was still here, keeping Anne company? Isn't that thoughtful? Lee, don't ever swallow that tongue of yours. It'll poison you. (laughs) And I love you, too. Disinfected. Well, they act Um, as the chorus in this in some ways. Yes! if, If you were thinking of Greek drama... But also, it's interesting because originally in one of the storylines that was dropped and later the um, Spin Mm. and Longer episode we'll come to was put in its place, um, the original plan was Mm. that Lee and Philip Mervish would trick Eric back onto the drink just to see what happened Mm. and get him horrendously drunk. And in the end, they were banned from the bar in Mm. the original script, but Mm. that another they were written out less obviously later on anyway the mervish the other thing about episode one the, yeah. the one final which i think is a key scene is where eric talks about the dolphins and the oh dolphin yes that was saved let's by, let's um, play some of that in because it's a beautiful metaphor you know anything about dolphins no not really oh they're very special 
I followed a pair of them once, tracked alongside them. The male one had been hurt or was sick. He hadn't even got the energy to, to come up to the surface. And if a dolphin doesn't take in air, every 20 minutes or so he dies. So the female swam alongside him, and every now and again she put her head under him and hauled him to the surface so that he could breathe. What happened? I don't know. I had to go back. I was running short of fuel. But I, I'd like to think he made it, that she'd pulled him through, or she'd worked damn hard at him. Because that sums up the show, doesn't it? Yeah, it really? sums up I mean, the show. It sums up this relationship. relationship. And yeah, yeah, exactly. So good. And I think it's a great performance for me and Henry as well. Mm. Um, so we agreed ahead of this episode that, mm. well, I just knew I didn't have time to watch it all again. And indeed, mm. I didn't. This was... Uh, this is the seat of my pants stuff getting to watch all of this before we recorded mm -hmm. but um we agreed we'd watch a few episodes and i watched all series. of it but found i could remember very little of it <laughs> so i've moved on to a touch of home if that's right. okay can we move on to yeah. episode four yeah what we'll do is we'll briefly uh basically the the present mrs clive is episode two and that is a, a story with awful jealous ex-wife yeah it doesn't really play on the the main themes the third one is interesting in terms of paranoia it's but it's basically about sales reps using a technique which basically makes all the people who've got secrets feel terribly upset oh yes i watched the last 10 minutes of that one because i wanted mm. to know what it was about yes and it seemed really bizarre because they mm. they rock up and do this sales pitch don't they and everyone's like oh my god that was it and the fury because they've all got these really terrible secrets and yeah that's right yeah. But also, there's a sort of, sort of slight subtext that Americans are not quite to be trusted in this series. I find that's another sort of slightly underlying thing because they are basically doing, they are doing selling, but they're doing selling by a technique that basically seriously messes up your mind, which leads into a touch of home. Yeah. Uh, because uh, we start to see what a messed up mind can actually look like. Yeah. Before we get into that, I just wanted to say something I mm. missed, and that is Michael J. Bird wrote most of the first series, but we also have mm. entries from Jack Ronda, who was mm. important on Survivors later on, David mm. Fisher, who we all know from Doctor Who, and mm. David Weir as well. Um, in terms of directors on series one, we also have, we have Cyril Koch, who seems to be the lead mm. director. Dougie Camfield mm. and David Cun my mate David Cunliffe. Again, I interviewed mm. David Cunliffe about Fall of Eagles. I wish I'd interviewed him about Where's the Bell? Lotus Hold Eaters. On. Yes, <laughs> David, me mate. Um, my old mate. The interesting thing gets me about, uh, I guessing, just purely guessing, because I've not actually looked it up, does Dougie Camfield do the one on the island with the Americans? Oh, I, I would have to check. Let me check. No, it's all right. I, ju I just wondered. Because it felt like it felt very Dougie Camfield to me. That one, I don't think he did. You know, I'm going to check. Oh right, okay. Um, no, that was directed by David Cunliffe. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Main. I suspect I was. I was thinking that because of the choice of music, but we'll come to that as well. Yes, we will. So we're on to a touch of home, which is directed mm. by Cyril Coke. I mean, the, the one with the sales reps was directed by Douglas Camfield, which seems odd to right. me. I don't notice yes. Douglas Camfield in that. No, no, not at all. No. Anyway, I do. Of course, he would have already had this his illness on Inferno after that stage, so he might have been coming back into mm. in back to work kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So, a touch of home is about Major Woolley and his wife Miriam Thorley Walters mm. and Sylvia Coleridge, and it's all about a package going missing to start with, isn't it? 
Yes, they they have a very the, the most sort of expat British kind of way. He's the old colonial, and she's the old colonial wife. She's very mousy in in that sense, very timid. Uh, likes they, they like their routine. They like you know she likes to come in and knit and have their one cup of coffee because they're living on a budget. Yeah. There's all this stuff going on. There's an interesting scene in the previous episode where this, they, they march along the quayside to a kind of marching tune, which ah. actually maybe explains the Campfield moment, <laughs> the <very laughs> okay. military thing going on. <laughs> okay. But um, but uh, yes, so but they also they are. There's a scene right at the beginning of, of uh, the episode where they're not present, but they are being horribly mocked <gasps> by the Americans. And it gets horrible. The Murphyshires are horrible. Mm. It goes on forever. And it's mm. too much of a performance. But most mm. people are laughing. But the key thing is in that scene, which I love, is that Anne and Eric are not laughing. Mm. They are good people. They will do right by people. And they'll support mm. anyone. And I love that about Anne and Eric. But the Woolies? Oh, the original Doldols. I think the Major would call it an ordered life. That's living. Seven o'clock, time to get up, my dear. <laughs> oh, uh, good morning, Edward. Cold char. Rule, Britannia, Britannia rules of ways. Ah, morning stroll. <laughs> Out with the dog. <laughs> Heal, Miriam. <laughs> Yeah. Back for breakfast. Oh, good up. Just the way you like them, Edward. I hope they choke your old bastard. Do we ever get to the what um what Eric did before? Was he also a spy? No, he was in the war in Korea. Right, so uh, that's it. He's, he's just ex-military yeah. and, and had this breakdown. And, and, and also was, in, was also imprisoned and tortured, which comes right. up in the Spin a Longer okay. episode. So that's all part of us. Yeah. yeah, but he was never he was never in in the in the secret services as far as no we're aware. no no definitely not. Right. No. He, it's but, just that because they do have a scene where they go um, shooting, you know, yeah. uh, clay pigeon shooting, yeah. and he's, he's you know, and, and it just surprises me because he's actually very good with a gun. <laughs> yes, and that was definitely the career training and his time right. military okay. training. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Woolies have this ordered life, but they're close to the brink. You can tell this parcel doesn't mm. arrive, and that's the catalyst for a terrible chain of events. We realise that Miriam Woolley is a bit disturbed. We, can't, we don't know for quite a while what's going on. There's a scene mm. where Kirsten and Mark um, visit and she's hitting the pavement in her, in her, in her English garden in Crete um, with mm. a broom, isn't she? Mm. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, what's up with her? What's she talking about? Mm. Um, I just must say, it's interesting having Julia Goodman in this because I've watched her in The Brothers. She's right. the daughter in The Brothers who is the the illegitimate daughter who is the catalyst for everything in that series. Mm. And it's nice seeing her in a different role where she's freer and a bit less prim. So I enjoyed mm. Julia Goodman in this. Mm -hmm. There were some moments in this episode where she's planning the party for her partner. And that, mm. that was, they were lovely little scenes. I, mm. I enjoyed those. You see, it's Mark's birthday. When? Friday. Oh, I didn't know. Mm. He's a bit hung up about it, actually. he will be 21, do you know? I suppose he thinks that's old. <laughs> Ancient. <laughs> Taking up a collection. Oh, no. I'm going to throw a party. Oh, that's nice. Yes, but I have got a problem. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Stay here, Miriam. 
You want another cup? No, thanks. So what's your problem? Well, we can't have it at our place. I mean, a hut. Who'd come? Yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, you'd like to hold it here, is that it? Well, that's what I had in mind. Would that be okay? Well, I couldn't close the bar. No, look, I wouldn't want you to. You see, look, Mark doesn't know anything about it. I want it to be a surprise. So, so what I thought I'd do was bring him down here on Friday and then the party would just sort of happen. <laughs> well, it'd be very crowded. So they're all invited. Well, if that's what you want. Oh, thanks. Anyway, mm. Miriam, it turns out, has this, these visions, doesn't she? Mm. Yeah, she's seeing uh, spiders, basically. Yeah. Tarantulas. She sees tarantulas in her garden. Mm. And she's obsessed with them. And she, mm. her fear is that they will get inside the house. That's right. And everyone's like, well, there's no tarantulas on Crete. That's mm. weird. Um, but Anne agrees to get some poison for Miriam. We don't know why. And we think, oh, God, is she going to poison the mm. major? But mm. Anne is kindly gets it for her. But um, mm. what happens next? She accidentally kills his dog, doesn't she? <laughs> Now, you say accidentally kills his dog. The production team accidentally almost killed the dog as well. Ah, okay. Because <laughs> didn't it look really good? I was thinking, how did they do this where the dog looks completely dead when they pick it up? Yes. I was thinking, oh my God, what happened? How did they do this? Turns out they drugged this dog way too much. Ah. And it had to be nursed back to health over time. Wow. So, yeah. Just having psychotic breaks and seeing spiders for months. <laughs> no animals were harmed in the filming of other series, but in the, in the course of the Lotus Eaters, this dog nearly died. Was was quite quite significantly harmed. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right, okay, fair enough. Mrs. Shepherd, do you have much trouble with the tarantulas? Sorry? The tarantulas. Do you get many of them on your patio? Mrs. Woolley, there aren't any tarantulas on this island. Of course there are. They're everywhere. Look there on that stone. Filthy things. They're dangerous, you know. Edward says I imagine that. Because he's never seen one. I sometimes think his eyesight is failing. All over the garden. I'm worried that they'll get into the house. That's why I asked you to get that stuff from the chemist. The poison? Yes. I put it down in several places, but it doesn't seem to do any good. Is that what happened to Dickie? Yes, must have been. The denouement is that... The major discovers that it was due to Miriam putting poison down to kill the non-existent tarantulas that mm. caused his gorgeous dog. Is it Dick the dog? Dick the dog. Probably. <laughs> if, he's, if he's standing around shouting Dick, then yes. <laughs> Unless he was after something else. We don't know. Um, <laughs> people go to Crete for all sorts of things. They do, apparently. Actually, that's the lot of reason why people go to Crete these days. <laughs> um, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> what? I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> he vengefully flamethrowers her whole garden, which is just an incredible scene. And she just completely loses it, because why wouldn't you? And this is where I think it was a really impressive scene. But if this had been directed by Douglas Camfield, I don't know how much more over the top it would have gone, but certainly it was insane. And she loses it. And then she starts seeing tarantulas inside the house. Mm. 
And then whose cricket bat do we get? We get Chekhov's cricket bat that we saw earlier, don't mm. we? We do. And she yeah. sees a spider crawl over her husband's face. She gets the bat. Well, it's a CSO spider, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> and she smashes it into his head. And there's blood everywhere. And basically she murders her husband because she thinks he's got a tarantula on his head. about that though is that they're not main characters but they you kind of think they're regular characters you think they're going to be around for a while they built them up over the previous yeah. three episodes and then and they basically come in and oh um yes uh, she's killed him <laughs> and but, she gets taken away to whatever asylum they have on crete <laughs> exactly i can't imagine it's a good place but it probably doesn't matter but um never seen again it's interesting because this episode is the one that really stayed with me and i'm sure viewers at the mm. time because of the spiders the spiders crawling everywhere but also because of the violence at the end but when i asked marisa what do you remember when we watched it five or ten years ago mm. and she was like yeah oh that was the one with wanda ventum as a spy and there was those old people with the spiders and that's all she remembered yeah. well, so i mean it's, it's quite strong stuff in again strangely interestingly parallels slightly with the web of fear when we watched Doomwatch on the on the first run there's the same kind of sort of techniques with spiders let, let, oh that was terrible, more animation though. but uh, there are some you know again sorry there's little blue spiders in Doomwatch. well and... again we're we're in the era when you know uh, the rats in in Doomwatch would have been sewn to trousers. You know, this this, this kind of infestation thing is definitely it's a theme. A, but a, but let yeah. me tell you, Thorley Walters was originally asked by Cyril Coke to have a, a tarantula crawling on his face. Hmm. Um, he but, said no, but he refused. He refused completely, and of course. And that's why you think it would have come up at the casting session, wouldn't it? But in in the book that I read, it said there was a plastic screen or a glass screen on his face with a spider crawling on top. I'm like, no, it's a CSO spider. I'm sorry, there's yeah, no that's blue screen. Yeah, yeah. there are some interestingly terrible blue screen moments that you get in in uh, in this because there are occasional scenes on the on the dock side, which is just. Ian Hendry and A.N. Other standing in front of blue screen. My fav, my favourite CSO moment is coming in series two. I'll tell you about it later. Anyway, okay. anything else on episode four? It's it's a, it's strong stuff. It's highly emotive. I mean, Sylvia Coleridge is always a good value, and, and we we love to see her in things. Yeah. So, and it's a, and again, it is a, a disturbing performance. Yeah. I'd just also like to say that I know it's not important, but I always feel like Sylvia Coleridge is kind of quite quite a big woman and but seeing her walking along in crete in the lotus eaters she's really thin and i think that says something about how her performance suggests different things because actually she's quite um statuesque when she plays the um the games um the croupier in blake mm. seven and i think she's just an astonishing actress who can lend herself mm. to so many different roles yeah anyway the next, so can you cover what happened in five and six? Because I didn't watch that. Well, in five and six, next episode is, is uh, Aphrodite, and basically it's it's basically a, a woman in a a girl, I suppose, in a bikini is found in a boat on a beach, and she's trying to get away from the couple. She seems to be living in a strange menage a trois. 
Oh. And and basically stuff happens. And, and, <laughs> and, and well, no, I mean, in the end, the, the trio go off together at the end. She's kind of sucked back into their world. Oh. She's trying to set herself up as a, I think it's, I think it's a potter, actually, in, in the... She wants to become an artist and set up, but uh, this couple, one of whom is uh, what's his face from uh, the, the Vicar of Dibley? Oh, James Fleet? No, no, oh, earlier than that, uh, of course. Gary Waldhorn. Oh, uh, Gary Waldhorn. Oh, I see. Yeah, is is one of the the couple mm-hmm. of, uh, who who are doing all that stuff. So that it's it's one of those. It's an interesting enough story. I mean, it you know, uh, that's the Jack, Tigan... that's the Jack Ronda one, by the way. And then uh, the next one is A Tiger in Bristol Street, which I really enjoyed. It was about kind of like failed artist. It's a tragic artist. I, I actually found that one stuck with me uh, in ways that stories about artists failing tend to. <laughs> yes, I don't know why that is the case. But... Well, that is the one that br- <laughs> it brings Morris Denham to the front and uh, his his daughter he, that he didn't really have any relationship with has been told he's been he's been dead for years but but they uh, her art dealer in london it's a part of it is set in london which is interesting ah. and this is this is alethea charlton who's one of my favorite it actresses yeah yes and she and it's a good episode but she then comes over to try and find if there are any more and you know they, any more paintings that she can sell because she has very little money and they think they're going to make a fortune out of his paintings but he actually used his paintings to patch up the roof in the shack he was living in at one point and it turns out because eric tries to finance his return to the art world Uh and he basically is unable to paint it turns out he hasn't been able to paint in a very long time he does do sketches of the tourists and things but that's a theme that's a theme about losing Mm. your artistic skill that comes up again later Mm. isn't it Ooh. So it's, so that's that's what that episode is about. Very very good episode actually, and again, sort of sort of brings uh, Morris Denham's character, sort of Nesta Nesta Turton, Nesta Turton, yes, yeah, yeah uh, up to the foreground. I mean, because Nesta is basically an indolent, you know, he's always cadging drinks. He's always trying to make a bit of money on the side. I mean, part of uh, the plot involves him uh, trying to persuade the the spy guy Donald, you know, to let him be a be his guide and he would get a daily rate and all this kind of thing which also he then does with the his the follow-up in the second year i'm coming back to england with you what why mr Durden? well in my drunken stupor last night thanks to eric's rather indifferent brandy yep and don't mention it i decided that england was the place for me to be precise birmingham birmingham why to visit the grave of my beloved wife, for one thing. Mother was cremated. How appropriate. Well, to trample on her ashes, then. Mm. And then, of course, there is my public. You have clients who are interested in my work. Yeah. Well, I think they'd like to see the artist in the flesh. And then they're my paintings. They do belong to me, after all. Mother left those paintings to me. They're my paintings. You are dead. I don't think so, not permanently. <laughs> Nesta Turton reminds me a bit of Tom Price in Survivors. I mean, not it doesn't have that malevolent edge, but um, but there's a, that's element of this sort of like indolent, um, mm. you know, 
Well, a gentleman of the road, we, yeah. we might have said yeah. in, in certain contexts. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. But, yes, yeah, certainly living uh, on the edge. You yeah. Know, but, and, and a bit of an old drunk. I mean, he basically, whenever he's got a few quid, he goes off to the brothel and all that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it, it's uh, it's an interest. It, it's, I suppose it's very much the epitome of the idea of the artistic community life, the runaway, the beatnik, the, mm. you know. Yeah. So episode seven is The Fascinating Couple, mm. um, which is focusing on Kirsten and Mark, the two hippies, and they're invited. What well, starts to... yeah. actually with the with them basically frolicking in the nude. Now that the frolicking in the nude has also been made reference to in a previous episode. Ah. You know that the policeman has sort of said, you know, can you have a word with them and ask them to stop swimming naked? Uh, and that's just seeded in an earlier episode because basically, yes, they frolic naked, very naked. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know whether uh, absolutely sort of full nudity was something that was on television much in those days. Mm. But, uh, maybe you could do it when it was holidays. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the holiday clause. Yes. But local, the local uh, Cretan people are offended by this. And I think it's, I think it's Cretan. You're saying Cretan. I think it's Cretan. 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 OK. <laughs> well, whichever. <laughs> the Cretan Cretans. <laughs> Cretan, <laughs> throw throw rocks at them, and uh, they're very unpleasant to them. What do you want? What? What is it, Mark? Ace Caesar, Pisostrus Vachus, Fidelity, Porto. Oh, you just want to be rude, do you? Well, go on, get out, all of you. You are the English giver, so we don't go on you here. That's right. Of what? I'm not ashamed of my own body, no. They are rescued, hurrah, by, uh, uh, well, uh, Eric happens to be passing in his boat, doesn't he? So, mm. so the Mervishes invite them to stay with them to recuperate. Mm. And then they get involved in this weird psychological, psychological experiment. sadistic experiment, which is the most horrific, mm. weirdest horrible. thing ever, yeah. which... So they take them to the leper colony, which at that point, Spinalonga, which is very near... Well, they were on the boat, weren't they? They were on yeah. the boat with Eric. He'd taken yeah. them on a day trip yeah. to this leper colony and they'd sort of done mysterious, oh, that's an interesting room. Oh, yeah. that's an interesting hut we could lock people in. Yeah. All that kind of thing. They'd, they'd scoped it out as a place where yeah. they could run another... It seems, though, that you get the impression that they've spent a lot of time doing other kind of psychological experiments maybe on each other yeah you don't know and maybe all the stuff they've been doing in the bar was actually seeing how people react they they've kind of got this idea that they've got this academic interest in how people are under pressure but actually they're just bloody horrible human beings they're just disturbed and sick there's something wrong mm. in that how they were brought up and their relationship mm. is weird it feels not like that of brother and sister it feels like there's a sexual mm. element to it as well mm. but mm. anyway they get locked up and well, I was going to say though, yeah, uh, something I did want to mention, yeah. which of course is when they're doing the tour of the island, we do get some very familiar music. Yes, tell us. Uh, so we are for a moment, we, we do find ourselves thinking we might be on Scarrow. Yes, <laughs> I was like, oh well, my basically, god, Tr Tristan Carey's music from the Daleks. Yeah. Hey, hey, wait till we 
and yeah. it's used a couple of times in the episode. But um, all the time I'm going, is that the Daleks music? <laughs> yes. Is that the music? And my brain, you know how it is when you've watched something a lot and you're just thinking, it's very familiar. Yes, <laughs> I got it. I wrote it down as well. But um, just to say a bit about Spinalonga. So Cretans mm. don't like Spinalonga because it's the former leper colony. And I visited mm. it three times or two times. But it is a, an amazing place to visit. But it's... it's Well, the second time you had to get the bodies out of that room. You yeah, know. exactly. But it, it's... You and your sister, oh, I know what's going on. <laughs> but it is bleak. You had to run away to New Zealand. <laughs> it is a bleak idea um, of a place and... I think it's, I mean, this is well before, like this Spinalonga is now an absolute massive tourist attraction. Every other boat goes there. You know, you couldn't have this psychological experiment today because it's, no. it's full of tourists constantly. Mm. But um, yes, um, this experiment, they lock them up in this hut, stone hut, so they can't get out. They mm. chose it because it's impossible to get out of, my God. Mm. And they put a skull in a bag to terrify them. Mm. They, they make say they've got food, but it's all off. It's all off. Yeah. And mm. do they have water? Do they even give them water? Maybe a little bit. Uh, it's brackish, I think. It's not actually drinkable. It's uh, yeah. yeah. It's uh, they basically put them in this room, and well, it seems like they're going to starve them to death. Basically, they just abandon them on this island where no one will ever find them. Uh, and it's a really weird, really weird thing for them to have done by now but you encourage that kind of fear they'll be scared into paralysis i want them angry well it's just a question of time They're lasting awfully well though we uh could go and bait them a little maybe uh and i mean they seem to have put recording devices in there yeah so they can hear them yeah yeah, yeah, so they can hear their reactions and stuff, and it's it's just a really troubling thing. And every so often they go across in their boat to taunt them. Yeah, and to hit pots and pans and stuff. Yeah, and just generally, I don't know. It's it's a it's a psychologically bloody weird episode. That it one. is so again really really sort of leaves a disturbing aftertaste. But again, we have Eric, and we have the shepherds who are coming in as sort of like, mm. I mean, in this case, he's he's an avenging angel, but it's kind of like. Mm. They they do care deeply about the people who come to Shepherd's Bar, mm. and the discovery of what they've done it puts him in mind of his time as a prisoner and the fury of Eric. Ah, mm. oh, it's brilliant. And well, he gives them a taste of their own medicine and yes. them in themselves, doesn't he? Yes. Although not for very long. But for really. long enough, and you get mm. the suggestion that he was going to leave them there to die. But they volunteered. You know that. They Eric. didn't volunteer for what you did to them. Let me tell you something, Flip. I was in a prison camp in Korea. I was tortured and I was brainwashed. Do you know what they do to you? They just lock you up in a cell and leave you and leave you alone. Long enough and you'll tell anyone anything just to hear another voice or see another face. Now, given the choice, I'd rather the pain the electrodes, the toenails pulled out, the Chinese water. Anything. Anything rather than go through that experience of isolation and neglect. Now, you two knew what you were doing to those kids. And I don't forgive you for it. Eric! Hey, come back, Eric. You can't just... Eric! Eric! I'll get you, you crazy man!
And it's only because Anne finds out, I think. Mm. And the two people are Kirsten and Mark are so lovely. Like, oh, I hope they're okay. I haven't. Mm. We're, we're trying to track them down. And it's like they left you, like in this situation, in your nighty love. <laughs> we never hear from the Mervishes again after this. No, but this is kind of like their persona non grata. Absolutely, mm. at Shepherd's Bar after this, mm. surely. Yeah. Well, I, I guess they they needed them not to be around for the the final episodes and not wanting to use the drink storyline. You know, yeah, storyline. They would have had to find another reason for them to be just never seen again. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether they were arrested and carted off by uh, <laughs> by his nibs. You know, we haven't mentioned his nibs yet. Have oh we? yes. Um, so he's very much just Captain Krasarkas, I felt, in Series 1. And suddenly in Series mm. 2, he's Michael all the time. Michael, 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 mm. Michael. I keep calling him like he's the closest friend. Stefan Griff. Yeah. Not Stephen Grief. I know, Griff. I get that mixed up. But I'm sure you mm. must say Grief still. I don't know. Mm. But um, he was a character. Um, mm. Basically, when he was cast, Stefan Grief, he was one of the last people cast. And mm. the guy who played Nikos, Anthony mm. Stambule he was given the choice of whether he wanted to play Nikos or Captain mm. Krasakis. And he chose Nikos because he thought it was a closer match to him. And basically, he made the wrong choice, essentially, because Krasakis ends up being one of the key players and one of the key characters. And he's there very much in a classical illusion Greek role as the sort of the... I don't know... He's kind of justice, isn't he? He, he represents yes, justice, yes. but in a sort of godlike way, where he's in kind of presiding over yes. things. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, well, he's the he's the forces of law and order, but also, like you say, he's he's the one who who sort of keeps everything under control. And it, it, again, I think it's a fascinating uh, character because it becomes more and more key as the series goes on. He he becomes their they're almost their protector. Yes. In in a lot of ways. And, and the interesting thing is, and when you read behind the scenes about it, it was because he struck up a relationship with Michael J. Bird as great friends when mm. they were filming series one. So therefore, mm. Michael wrote more and more for him and developed mm. him into a larger character because of the relationship mm. they had. And I don't like blackmail. It disgusts me. Perhaps because we are all of us so vulnerable. But even policemen, you mean? Conscience is every man's cross, my friend. As shame is his crown of thorns. To claim a monopoly neither is presumptuous. So, we move on to episode eight, which is a bizarre load of tosh, if you ask me. Yeah. And that's basically, you've got Anushka Hempel, at some point you're going to put her in a bikini. I think yes. that's basically part of the, part of the, I mean, Anushka Hempel, uh, you know, we love her from uh, Zodiac, you know, it's, yeah. uh, and obviously whodunit and things, but uh, I mean, really bizarre opening that way. You I don't think understand. she's there as an assassin. It's bizarre. And this is Douglas Camfield. He should know better. Mm. Um, mm. What was all that bollocks about? And I really did not need to see those that guy in those red short shorts. Those bollocks. <laughs> it was terrifying. It's an interesting. I, I th 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 it certainly says a lot about the father daughter relationship in that. But uh, I mean, there are a, a few novels where not not to well, I, I, I hate to use the term, but that sort of play on this this rape fantasy thing, which seemed to be popular in a certain sections of, of writing in those days uh, which now look 
always seem incredibly dodgy but it's the same kind of thing it's like do they do they play these games where you know it's a bit like Cato and Cluso <laughs> where yeah. his daughter tries to sneak up on him and pretend to kill him every it's bizarre it's it's a bit, exactly. it's about, it goes on for about a good five minutes at the beginning of the episode doesn't it <laughs> welcome home to Castor you're going to give me heart failure. Oh, not a tough old thing like you. How'd you get that thing through the customs? I declared it. It looks menacingly real. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect detailed model. Well, thank the gods it is a model. You get some gorgeous shots of Anuska Hempel, because she is completely beautiful, but it's just it's just bizarre. The episode's called You Might Get Hurt, Jocasta, which mm. is perhaps the worst-named episode title in all of any TV, mm. I think. Hello. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm just, I'm just dwelling on that. I'm trying to think of a worse one. No, you're right. It's, it's a, it is a. I mean, I, some, I think the episode titles are a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming they are all sort of making some allusion to, 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 to uh, classical literature. Not all of them. No, I think they're a mix. I'm surprised that they don't more, because mm. like we had, and here I had a sister. Um, I don't know. I think they should have had more illusions mm. than they did. Aphrodite, obviously. Mm. But this one is just, they they like the name Jocasta, and mm. it's just literally a quote from the episode. Mm. So basically, Eric has had a previous flirtation with mm. Jocasta. Mm. So her arrival sparks trouble. As he seems to have had with every single woman who comes through the village. F- F- Honestly, they, they all flood their basements for Ian Henry then. <laughs> Is that Ian Henry with the wig or Ian Henry without the wig? I don't think it matters. They just think he's the most gorgeous man in the whole history of creation. He's got a boat, you know. Yeah, maybe it's the boat. But Donald Curley also returns mm. and he wants to continue the relationship he and Anne had started. Um, but he doesn't really. He's just there for activating purposes. Mm. But um, there's this horrible scene when he takes his top off mm. and... And he can't get it up, and I'm like, I mean, you don't see that, thank God. Mm. But it's kind of like, I feel I felt for Wonder Ventum in those moments. I really did. <laughs> but it turns out that Alan Fletcher, who sounds like a character from Neighbours, mm. um, he is a writer. He's the father of Jocasta, and he's another he's... one who can't basically get it up in terms of his writing. Yes, in and the that same way back that Nestor Nesta couldn't. Yes. Mm. It's that theme again. And he actually is fake writing because mm. he can't write anymore and he hasn't written anything for years. Is that right? Yeah, so it's like, you know, maybe yeah. go upstairs and just click the tick keyboard for, for two hours and say, oh, yeah, which, day's work this which morning. Is, <laughs> which is insane. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> you can't keep that up when people are, are, aren't even watching you do it. It's bizarre. That person must be deeply disturbed. I didn't buy it as a storyline. I thought it was very weird. Um. Then they have a big party and Wanda Ventum turns up in a, a horrible dress. Mm. Thankfully, she says it's old. Mm. It looks brand new to me. But um, Alan gives this big speech about fear and about generation gaps mm. and how marriage is for adults only and how he must grab life and he wants everything, but he'll settle for a swim. Well, all right, most marriages constrain the partner's limit. And diminish, it seems to me. If one is big, the other must be small. One strong, the other weak in turns. You must be sour for Eric to be kind. Only if you are childish can he be adult. Not mutual, Alan. you see, Anne, Alan, but... Uh, are you... You keep picking on Anne. That's all right. I can fight my own battles. I'm sorry, Anne. Truly very sorry. I apologise. 
I've no business at all to make it personal. I think I've had a lot to drink. The words are unwavering now. And it, it feels like one of those terrible dinner parties that I think I always saw off out of the side of, down the stairs, out the side of a door when my parents were younger. Yes. And they'd have these terrible dinner parties with these weird people and everyone was wearing caftans and they were all laughing uproariously mm. while slugging back wine and occasionally smoking cigarettes, which horrified me. See, I'm convinced that all dinner parties are horrific, no matter what they are. Dinner party. Basically, basic dinner with guests is horrific. I think as you've just... <laughs> Martin has called it. Don't have a dinner party. Ever. Remember what Martin's told you. Okay. So you but, see them on, you know, what's the name? Uh, uh, Nigella Lawson's cookery show. And they've got all these, these London metropolitan elites sitting around going, oh, how do you want to be? I, just think, oh, I just wouldn't even, I know I wouldn't be invited, but I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd refuse to go. <laughs> I love it. This is, this is in the news. Martin refuses to attend Nigella's dinner party. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse. I know well, you want I, me I there with my have, sparkling wit. Uh, I did. I, I did once. Uh, I, I did once get, go to a, a birthday party uh, in a in a restaurant, and uh, <laughs> and had a panic attack at the door and had to go and sit in the car for ten minutes. Oh my god! So, uh, oh, bless I'm, your heart. I'm not a, and these were people I knew. <laughs> oh my god! But that's because you already knew that dinner parties were evil. Well, precisely. I just, I just yeah. confirmed it for me. Anyway. There's this un- uneasy thing with Eric and this Jocasta, because she's obviously a lot younger than mm. him, and he's got an eye for the younger ladies. Mm. There's a definite element, because she also kind of seems to like her dad, mm. there's a sort of Electra complex mm. thing going on, which isn't called out, but it's mm. it's certainly a bit dodgy. And I think some of this is foreshadowing you know, uh, the relationship with, um, what's her name, in the final, Katarina. Katarina you yeah. know, I think it's, it's trying to sort of see he's got this history of, of going yeah. for these young girls, you know, and um, yeah, all that. Because I, I can't remember at what point we find out about Carol Sadler, who's the girl from Ian Hendry's past. Mm. Oh, we get the flashbacks for the trial every so often, don't we? And the freeze frame of him getting in the car because he was accused of this moider. Yeah, and rape. Mm. But in fact, it turns out later on he didn't kill her. But there's this, the fact that he could have mm. is playing very much in in Anne Shepard's mind. Well, again, it's interesting that, I mean, plays very much in, into modern sensibilities of, of nowadays, you know, people people turn up on the news and they make statements to the police and, and all over Twitter people are going, oh, we obviously did it because they've seen too many Netflix documentaries where <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, people become these these home crime fighters because they they know psychology because, oh, look at him, look at his shifty eyes, whereas obviously you stick a camera in anybody's face and they're making a statement. They all, we all look dodgy, I think, quite frankly. Yeah. Unless you're American. Americans seem to be very good on camera. They always seem to have a statement ready if the, if the news people... It's like, I think they learn this from birth. <laughs> There's a brilliant scene in this episode where... And Eric Shepard says, I love you, Jocasta. Mm. And she turns to him and says, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, like, it's Han and Leah but, all over again. <laughs> this, this, Yeah, exactly. It just makes me think of, um, of just like Anushka Hempel's life must have been like always, just people declaring their love for her. Oh. And she was just saying, yeah, I know. And carrying on yeah, her own yeah, sweet way in, anyway, I'm, I'm in her broad-brimmed I'm, I'm hat. I'm who done it now. Thank you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Leave me alone. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, they go off, he goes off for a midnight swim. Mm. And he dies, mm. this Alan character. Mm. And then we make the discovery about him not being able to write. Mm. Um, and 
it's quite an abrupt ending, I mm. think. But I think the main message, as you've already alluded to, is never have a dinner party. They're dreadful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I absolutely stick by this. If, 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 any, <laughs> if any of our listeners are thinking of inviting us to a dinner party, I'm not coming. <laughs> I might come if, if someone strips naked. <laughs> not dies, though. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if you know, Andy, you'll turn up I... for the opening of an envelope. But me, not a chance. <laughs> wow. Well, the um, opening of a canopy, maybe. Maybe. So we move on to the series finale, mm. the climbing wave. The climbing I think wave. The fact, I think the fact that this is episode nine mm. and thirteen was the norm mm. just shows how it, it speaks to two things. Mm. One is that there was troubled production. I think mm. troubled in the script writing process. Michael J. Bird kind of did some script editing, mm. and he didn't like it on the series as well. Mm. Um, it didn't formally have a script editor, mm. I don't think, but also. This was a huge drama output thing for BBC Two in a year when all of their drama output was almost all cut. So almost all of it went into the Lotus Eaters only. Oh, it's a bit like when they did Our Friends then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And I think that was one of the reasons why they didn't go to 13 episodes Mm. in the end, because they didn't have enough money. There must have been technical difficulties as well, having to film in Crete and London. I mean, there must have been a lot of... I mean, you know, the location must have... Yeah, I know that David Cunliffe had to go back to film again mm. in Crete after the original filming block mm. for, I think, for this episode mm. because they didn't have everything they mm. needed. And, yeah, so, yeah, it was kind of a checkered production history from what I can tell. Did you know about The Lotus Eaters? Did you know... I mean, did, had you heard of it before you watched it? I mean, did you think... Oh, did you have a sort of preconception of it? Because I always thought it was a bit raunchy. It had this reputation of being yeah, this slightly I raunchy, kind of, very sexual programme. Yeah, I think I kind of got that impression. Mm. It was one of those seventies programmes where marriage was kind of mm. yeah, flagrantly being ignored mm. and there was it was it was mm. sexy, mm. yes. I got that mm. impression. But in fact, in today's terms it's quite it's it's not sedate, mm. but and the elements of it which are kind of along that way but I just think sometimes it because in many ways it's quite ordinary and I don't, yeah. I don't I don't mean that in a derogatory way I just mean it's not over glamorized you know you don't have it's it's not like a dynasty version of the bar it is just a bar if you see what I mean yeah and it's quite drab mm. yeah anyway the climbing wave Donald Cully reveals the true reason for his return mm. And he's effectively trying to destroy the shepherd's marriage because he wants Anne to come back with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and activate activate her spidum. Yes. And yeah, it's it's quite surprising. I'd forgotten that there were two murders in this episode. <gasps> the th- the thing that, well, again, that actually says a lot, doesn't it? Is it? Did you forget the Katerina murder, or did you forget the him murder? I forgot the him murder. Right, so you remembered the Katerina murder because I knew I, that I, she was going to get I, murdered. I, I did. I must admit, my heart sank a little bit, not because I was thinking, "Oh, I like watching Katerina," but actually, I just felt it's another, it's another one of those series where the young girl becomes the victim, and yeah. you just kind of think, "Oh, not again!" It's all you know. Yeah, it's it's very much playing on those kind of beats, if you like, and uh, I don't know. I did feel the slight sense of, "Oh dear, that's a shame," but and there are reasons because it's just to put Eric in the frame and all this kind of thing. Katarina was 15 years old, and like the other girl, she was also strangled. That's not unusual. A man attacks a girl, she screams, he puts his hand around her throat. As I say, it's not unusual. 
but it is another coincidence. Hmm? I'm to blame, Michael. For what? For what's happened. For what happened to Carol Sadler, even. Why? How can that be, if your husband is innocent? Look, I talked to Eric once about what happened in England. He told me he didn't kill the Sadler girl, and I believed him. I still believe him. But you said he was in jail. He is. At Hierapetre. He was picked up by the police there last night because he was drunk. I received a telephone call this morning to say they kept him in the cells overnight for his own protection, you understand? There won't be any charges. That's what I came to tell you. Katerina? You didn't think that Eric had killed the child he loved, did you? What I love about it, what I absolutely love about it, is that it's because they force Eric into a corner and he goes off on this bender and he goes off and gets completely yeah. hammered. But actually, it's going off and getting completely hammered that saves him. I know. It's such a gorgeous little plot twist mm. and it's a clever conception. Mm. The fact that Cully's trying to frame Eric mm. um, for the murder of Katerina. He's done it himself mm. because of the previous um, acquittal over Carol Sadler. Mm. Um, but Cully also drives Eric to drink. Well, it gives him an alibi because he's he's in yes. he's actually in prison. He's been he's, yeah. he tries driving home, absolutely pissed, gets stopped by the police, puts him <laughs> yes. puts into prison. So he's thirty yeah. miles away when the murder happens. Yes. So Cully's an idiot, and I'm pleased about that because mm. he's horrible. Mm. Um, but yeah. So then Anne goes to see Cully mm. and works it out and. Yeah, she becomes Liz Shaw in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> she she murders him, which is brilliant. She, she, her handgun yes. skills suddenly come. All those those flashbacks to her shooting at those targets suddenly become. So uh, and it's interesting because you don't see her shoot him. You it cuts. She holds the gun. You hear it's a flashback. Yeah, and actually, then he's on the floor dead. You don't actually get that dramatic sort of Blake Seven. Have you, do, you know, <laughs> have you betrayed yes. us? Have you betrayed me? Splurge. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really weird because in episode four. Anne says, oh, I can't I can't use a gun. I've never used a gun. Mm. And I'm thinking, is she so much in deep cover or denial mm. that she she doesn't remember using a gun? Mm. Or is that just her is... cover? She's just telling people that. Because yeah. Yeah. she's had the memories, so she, you know, the yeah. flashback memories. So, yes, it, it is a weird one. In the opening of this series, when, um, when Cully is stalking Ian, because Ian's taking Katerina to the... Well, it's like, it's not a fair, is it? It's the festival. Festival. Yes, and, All um, Saints Day. All Saints Day, and um, uh, and and you just get this sort of stalking thing going on. But I'm kind of thinking, was that recreated for the show, or was it? Is, is it just tourist? You know, was it footage of the actual? I event think it was just, that, and they just. I think to they be just there. decided. We know it's happening. Then we've got to get there. Is that, that why moment. they went back? Do you think because of the date? I think maybe yes, mm. absolutely. I mean that local color is is. Is lovely, and we've mm. had that again and again for Greek, mm. Greece over the years. Certainly in his series, and mm. it's 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 the sort of local color you get in Secret Army mm. that I really like, where you mm. see daily life, and it's it's so beautifully done. Mm. Um, although I think it's probably a the sequence is a bit too long, mm. and also you've got that uneasy edge about it because he is old enough to be at least mm. her father, possibly a grandfather, to be honest, the way he looks, but. Do you think, I mean, it's interesting, we've said in a couple of these things where we said the sequences seem a bit too long. Do you think that might have come from the production problems? You know, the the, the scripts were running short or they were having so many problems that they needed to fill out the episodes to the 50 minutes and, and sequences like 
last and, yeah. and the the mimicking one in the the, pre the previous episode, you know, where they were mocking the uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, they just kind yeah. of do you think that was ex you know, stretch that a bit, you know, just to you know, I think I think it's also like an intention to really show the beauty of Crete mm. and to show a different culture that that was going to be a huge part of the mm. the the feel of it, mm. but. I don't know. It sometimes it feels like too much. Well, again, that's important in this type of show. You need to see, you know. Again, I mean, John Nathan Turner would have said you need to see the, the money on screen. So I suppose yeah. if you've flown to Crete, you need to see bits of Crete from time yeah. to time. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So that's basically they, they they basically at the end of the episode they they get on Eric's boat and Scarpa uh, with the help. Yeah, and Chrysarchus is is knowledgeable about this. He's on the key side, isn't he? And um, when they go off, mm -hmm. he kind of waves them off effectively. Um, and that yes. is the end of series one. So when they repeated the series in 73 ahead of showing series two, they cut three of the episodes, and I was interested to see this. They cut, um, and here I had a sister, Aphrodite, and the fascinating couple. Aren't so they made... Couple? That's interesting. Yeah. Of, of them, I, I would have thought Jocasta would have been cut before. I think they couldn't because it has Cully coming back. Of course. Yes. Too much yeah. part I'm just of thinking the of the on, ongoing arc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Some of them aren't really relevant to the ongoing arc and some of them are more, I suppose. So series two is uh, only yeah. six episodes uh, yeah. and actually picks up immediately, which I find yes. very odd. They've gone on the run, surprised. they get in their boat, they turn around, they go back again. <laughs> exactly, All, like immediately because you think, well this is going to be months later or maybe a year later, but no, it carries straight on which is a shock mm. um, I do want to read a bit for you about mm -hmm. series 2, and this is a bit of the confrontation between Andrew Osborne who is head of BBC Drama and Michael J. Bird mm. this is in a letter to Andrew Osborne that Michael J. Bird wrote the last series established Anne as being a not particularly important cog in the work workings of the secret intelligence service it was never my intention that she should be anything else. The fact that Anne was a sleeper agent was only incidental, an extreme example of deception, which is a theme we were all trying to explore. Mm. If the Lotus Eaters went to another service, it seemed to me that the Secret Service element should be phased out very quickly, leaving the shepherds badly scarred and faced with an absorbing problem within their relationship, rather than a continuing threat from an espionage organisation. I'm not convinced that developing the spy theme is the way the next six episodes should go. And even if the decision were to change, if it were the, the decision to change direction came too late for anyone to come up with anything, something solid and carefully thought out, there just isn't time. Mm. But Osborne was like, he obviously ignored this letter and said, no, well, that's what we're doing, mate. So sod it. So that is not the direction that the creator wanted the Lotus Eaters to go in in series two. Yeah, well, I mean, basically series two is a spy thriller it's a six-part spy thriller i mean there's, there's not really yes. much getting away from that it's yeah. um i mean you get the agents coming i mean the the boss you'd see in flashback you see him he, they're all actually in crete you're never really quite sure what the mission or whatever it was and it was supposed to be and this is what i wanted you to f tell me because mm. i'm so confused the fact that Anne is a sleeper agent in crete mm. 
Why are they all there? If she's just an, an insignificant sleeper agent mm. who's not been activated for 10 years, mm. why are they all there, like, flies around shit? Well, it when... seems that the Russians have taken an interest because it turns out there's an awful lot of Russian spies on Crete as well. There must and be also, some it turns out Chinese reason. spies as well. <laughs> Chinese spies. It's just Basically, bizarre. Crete has become the centre of the espionage world for a couple of months. Uh... Just for the purpose of this series, though, which mm. is silly, isn't it? And it turns out that the uh, Cully and uh, what, who's the guy who follows, uh, who replaces him, uh, Mister Cumberbatch. <laughs> yes, Timothy Cotton is Gerald Mace. Mm. Yes, he uh, Gerald Mace. He they, they are both actually not working for British intelligence, but are Russian spies. And indeed, there is an American agent who turns out to not be an American agent, but is also a Russian spy. <laughs> and there are some archaeologists who are surprisingly oh oh. Susan Engel turns out to be a wrong un. That's a big... Vivian Faye is a wrong un. Who would believe it? Yeah. Oh, and she's a spy. <laughs> she's a spy, so, but for the Chinese. So everybody's a spy. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what I take issue with. It's ridiculous that mm. everyone's a spy. And why are they all there? Why do they care about this insignificant agent? Well, some spies want to open a hotel, but we think that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit bizarre, and it becomes a bit hard to take. Even more so when you find that we have a new director in our midst who directs half the series, and that is no less than my good friend, but crazy person, Victor's Retellis. <laughs> and we've got a new producer as well on board, which is uh, Michael Glynn for the second series. Yes, who was associate producer on series one. So the problem here, I mean, it's, it's glorious, but it's silly, is that episodes two, four and six are directed by Victor's Retellis. Mm. And he wa- he was a frustrated film director, effectively. I think he was a frustrated music video maker, quite frankly. I mean, you, the opening <laughs> of episode two, The Kind of Treason, is just the most batshit crazy piece of television I've seen in a very long time. It's it's like there's people with umbrellas. There's It's the prisoner. There's a little pu- it's, it's the prisoner. It's the prisoner. It's, it's filmed it, on a beach somewhere. It's And you get Wanda Ventum running into Miralon. And M- there's numbers. numbers that have no bearing. No reference. It's bizarre. And, and sort of there's bits of flashing tinsel. A, a, a nearly naked man climbs up and seems to have designs on a horse, out, climbs out of the water and has designs on a horse. There's a sort of strange part, a strange dinner party with lots of people with umbrellas in, in, in white tie <laughs> or not, in black tie and tails. But you on, have on a just pla- what if 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 the only bit you watch most Lotus Eaters is the first five minutes of episode two, a kind of treason series two, then at least you'll be entertained by the the weirdness of I that. I actually sat there because I've been watching this in the mornings and I've been watching I've watched 10 episodes and I just sort of yeah. went, I just sat there with my cup of tea going what? <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it is absolutely batshit crazy it's it's and it, you get flashbacks to this in later episodes where it's used again but it is it's a dream sequence but it just Oh, I don't know. I, I, you feel almost you could you could feel like a, a new order track. It could have worked as the video quite happily. You know, it's just yeah. it's totally off its rocker, and yeah. you do start to think, "Am I was watching the same series? Have I put the wrong episode on?" It's. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's. Whoa, you know. 
And Wanda Ventum herself said, it was good fun, but it had nothing to do with the Lotus Seasons. <laughs> yeah, it really didn't. I mean, I was and I was even questioning whether it was actually filmed on a you know on a beach on the south coast of England. I wasn't even sure it was a Greek beach. <laughs> I just thought they'd, they'd taken a, a crew out one weekend to uh, South End or something and done all this nonsense. I mean, I've seen a lot of behind-the-scenes filming pictures mm. of this and um, Aphrodite Inheritance, which also Vic Retires did, mm. and he directed all in, in tiny swimming trunks as well. Mm. Um, oh. He was a character. He really was one of the f- a very openly out gay director. Fair enough. And I think he he just had this vision of what he wanted to put on the screen. And I suppose actually it could have worked. I mean, if if your vision was was in, involved pop videos, I suppose it might have just worked. As well. <laughs> but I think some of what he does is great. But sometimes he's just given yeah. too much um, rope. Yeah. I mean. Some of his episodes of Secret Army are some of the best, mm. and he does a lot of Secret Army. I mean, mm. Days of Judgment is his, and that's one of the best. I think that is the best. Are episode. there any bizarre dream sequences in Days oh, of Judgment? If you know, it's Victor's. If you watch yeah. Secret Army again, having watched this, yeah. now, yeah. tell us. Oh, well, that's always, what I'm wondering. Really, you will always know his episodes because there's a weird close-up of something like a cat. Mm. In this episode, there was. Um, they suddenly focused on a snail. Mm. That was was making its way around a bit of metal. Mm. There's always some moments which tell you, oh, this is a Vic Vitalis episode. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we should go back to episode one there and back by candlelight. Mm. This is when she's lost her memory. Of... Yeah, she's and lost, lost her memory. Her memory. Um, and, they, and they go on the run. They, they they're still on the run in the boat, and then they get to this weird little island somewhere uh, where they can't get because the, the boat breaks down doesn't it and and eric wants to repair the boat and you and you get this thing where everyone offers him a drink everyone wants to offer him a drink and, you, and he gets to stare at bottles a lot and refuse and all this kind of thing yeah it's it's a it's an all it, yeah the, the, this has gone off in a weird place and then they just think no let's go back let's just go back it'll be fine it'll be fine the big important thing is that anne has lost her memory mm. and she has no memory of becoming anne chernick or indeed mm. anne shepherd she thinks she's judith huxley which she hasn't mm. been for years mm. And that's the big thing. I don't know how you feel about... I think in series where people lose their memories, mm. this it's usually in soaps. Mm. I always think it's too much of a contrivance and it's a bit silly. Your father's name was Joseph Chernick. He was Czech. Your mother was English. Her name was Evelyn. No. No, both my parents were English. My mother's name was, was, was Margaret and my father's name was Charles. Charles Huxley was a civil servant. You speak German. Yes. Yes, I do, fluently. I studied at university. You speak Czech? No. No. Good day, Tuniaki Dobry Hotel. They blast me. That's the only sentence in Czech I know, and you taught it to me, Anne. I suppose you could argue that, that she was given this new personality and she's buried that. I mean, there are psychological yeah. reasons why yeah. that is a possibility, but it, it yes. is stretching, you know, it is stretching credulity. And it, and it is basically the sort of thing that happens in this sort of TV show, I think, is, is, is the kindest way of putting it. Oh, I've just remembered the worst CSO ever in the series is mm. at the start of this episode. It's in London with lots of double-decker buses. Oh, good God, yes! <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, well, I remember. Yeah, I, I meant to write that down. God, yes, because it's the angle. 
<laughs> it's just imp- oh dear lord it was so awful I think how did you put this on the screen at least when they go back down in the, the, the second episode I think they've got the blinds because it's yeah they, just... they would have to it's but you just think awful they would have even reshot that on the day it just didn't work that was awful wasn't it yeah. hilarious the one there were so I did many like... double decker buses as well oh. to say this is London but let's yes. have 12 double decker buses stock footage in the but shot at ground level <laughs> yes, so they were like so some bizarre. basement corner building because it's two angles as well. That's the weird. Thing. I know. And, I know. Oh, and it just oh, it makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, it's, it's amazing though. I love it because it's so bad. What I do like about the episode, because I was sat, I was sat there thinking, even when I was watching the, the episode nine, the, the last episode of the first series, is why hasn't Eric given the keys to um, what's his name, uh, the barman? What's his name? Nikos. Nikos. Why is he not given the keys to Nikos? I think because they left too quickly. Yeah, um, but literally, because... Um, what's his name? Oh, God. The names are... Kasakis? No, um, the, the artist. Uh, Nesta. Nesta turns up. Nesta turns up into the bar. The door's wide open. He nips in, has a few drinks. and so, yeah. Where are they? Where are they? Where have they gone? Where have they gone? And it's not locked up at all. But you kind of think... Because I was thinking, well, at, at least... Um, Oh, Nick Nikos is it Nick? It is Nikos. At least yeah. Nikos will get will get the bar. That's what I'm thinking at the end of. Yeah, they'll but, give the bar to me. No, know. but he but he's he's otherwise detained because he's confessed to the murder of Katerina. Has he already been arrested at the yes. end of episode night? Right, yeah. right. I yes. I sort of thought he didn't hand himself over until, you know. Because, I mean, this is all the day after two murders happened in the town. This is the other thing you've got to remember. <laughs> two murders happened yesterday. Yes, exactly. Even though it's a year later. But yesterday, uh, and one of them, this happened. And one of them was the girl who worked in the bar. <laughs> I know. But I never really understand Nikos's confession. He later mm. on explains that it was, it was a gift to the shepherds because he mm. loved them and stuff. Mm. There's a lot of love for the shepherds. Mm. But... Um, well, but, still, they talk about the fact that they've still got capital punishment at the time. So yeah. it was a, a big gift, quite frankly. But he said he'd lie about... He will lie about about Katerina, but he would not lie under oath in court. So right. it's a really weird thing that I think it's, it's contrivance again. Mm. Something I did like from episode one I wanted to talk about was there was a lot of classical allusions, which I feel there should have been more of in mm. the Lotus Eaters, and certainly there was more of in the Aphrodite what, inheritance. Where there's what parallels to the old... The actual traditional stories. Kind yeah, of. so you've got mm. like Eric and Anne, effectively Odysseus, but with Penelope with him, which doesn't really mm. quite make sense because he comes back to Penelope. But the mm. idea that, that there's the allusions to classical figures, which I quite like. Mm. But um, suddenly, out of nowhere, they keep calling Chrysarchus Michael, which mm. they didn't used to, unless I've. I've unless they didn't I used to yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they didn't used to yesterday. Exactly. Good point. <laughs> Um, there's a wonderful moment where Anne goes running off. Mm. Um, she must have been fit, um, at Wonder Ventum. Mm. And she runs into a sheep attack situation. <laughs> sheep! Sheep! <laughs> that, that's it. That just amused me no end. Mm. Um, there was a weird drum beat playing over that as well. Second 
second series as a whole just goes a bit do lally tap quite frankly it's just yeah. it it is really very very strange the sub all the i mean the the sense of different plays in the first season it sort of falls apart you get that a little bit with the, the beside a crooked style where which is the end of nestor yeah you know but nestor is driven to his death basically by um by uh gerard mace He's, he's he's driven to his death by Gerard Mace, uh, and and that is actually quite moving because I, I mean obviously I, I think basically you've got to clear out the characters before you get the last two, but uh, I think it's quite brutal what happens to Nesta really and yeah. not necessarily necessary. No, indeed. And you know why? Because they're my friends, my very good friends, and I've done the journey of them. We've got Susan Engel as Imogen Lundquist, mm. in, who's there with Dr. John Dartington, mm. um, who they are archaeologists. Yeah, but he is she's... surprisingly weirdly in it. Is he a spy as well? No, he's not. Thank he's, God. So, he's about so the only character in series two who's not a spy. So she's actually. So she's not. They're not working as spies together. She's no. just w- working for in his circle as a spy. Right. Okay. But she's in deep cover as an archaeological assistant. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't know what the fuck she's doing there for the Chinese, but um, she's a former beau of Eric because all women who are glamorous all are. All women are. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Probably, I, I think he had a bit of a twinkle for Sylvia Coleridge at some point. You know? yeah, and I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> Eric. Why? Smuggling's against the law. We're alone now, so tell me the truth. Why are you doing this? Because you're a friend of the family. What? Now think about it. Cully. Mace. Now, I can prove it if I have to, right? Right from here to Peking. Uh, see. But Eric, why this way? Because it's cleaner. How considerate. This series is just awash with, as I said, 40 to 50 year old men who are meant to be attractive to mm. all women, but it's just, just so much slabby, mm. big men. It's just horrible. The um, but Susan Engel's a welcome change. I mean, mm. there's not enough women in series two, definitely. Mm. There's literally her and you get the Ariadne, who's mm. the housekeeper yeah. for series two, and you got Anne, but there's not enough women in series yeah. two. But again, the the reveal at the end of episode five that she's the spy is, is it's, you know, it's it's hardly, oh, you know, the massive, biggest shock in the world, is it? No, really? I mean, honestly, this has been the worst kept secret, really, you know. But um, yes, so the last episode, and if you have Time Lord, mm. which you Sorry? can tell is directed. <laughs> yes, and if you have time, if you have a Time Lord, um, is Pertwee very, turns up and everything's resolved. <laughs> very obviously filmed, directed by Victor's Ritalis, mm. <laughs> just because batshit crazy things happen again, mm. like on the mountainside when Eric says goodbye to all the people who have died. Mm. Apparently, like that wind did just blow oh. up, and it was incredibly affecting. The sudden and there was... storm, yes, yes. But but of course, because Victor Tellis can't help himself, there is 
there is clouds coming over and there's thunderclaps and it just is absolutely all over the top mad. Well, um, they basically decided. Well, I mean, uh, they've been ousted, haven't they? They've been kicked out of Crete. I mean, uh, yes. And, and but Eric, it, it becomes whether or not he's going to go with Anne or whether Anne's going to just leave on her own. Yeah. Uh, but basically, she's told that she will no longer be welcome on Crete. Yeah. Uh, fascinating to me. There are two things that fascinated me. Again, it's not necessarily the most important things, but there's a piece of stock footage at the airport which looks totally black and white. But is actually yeah. cut. But is actually colour when you look at it. Mm. Something comes into shot that proves it is colour. So you think we're all the planes in Greece, black and white in those days. <laughs> but also, and I liked this. And don't get me wrong, but I did like the fact that Ian Hendry put on a suit and tie to travel. Oh, <laughs> bless him. Because I'm yes. thinking people don't dress up for, certainly the British do not dress up for their flights anymore. Not anymore, no, but maybe it was a thing you did then because it was special. Oh, it, well, um, it would have been. I, I, mean, when, yeah. I mean, the flights I did in those days, yes, I think my, my father probably bought a new jacket and tie especially for the journey. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few things I wanted to bring out of this episode. One was Imogen's moment where she says in front of the professor guy, um, you don't know what I'm capable of, which is very Vivian Fay. I like that. And also there's a scene where Eric, Eric gets to hit either Nicholson or someone else. And in that area where he says, oh, I'm not going to... He walks away because he's not mm. going to hit them. And then he just turns around and thumps Helps the living daylights out of them. And I enjoyed that. <laughs> you fancy your chances, don't you? in your sort they never do I should just run along if I were you yeah yeah all right but uh, just before I do <laughs> It's, it's an interesting one because that one uh, is kind of weaving together all the time. It's got a lot of work to do, and if you have time, the Time Lord. Yeah. You know, it, it's got an awful lot of, of baggage because you've got to bring all these different disparate threads together. I mean, you get the Russian ship and, and someone being put on one ship who thinks they're going on another ship. So they think they're going to, they're going back to the safety of China, but actually they're going to be taken to Russia and, and their Stockholm. Fate. One of them going to Stockholm and then to mm. Leningrad. Yeah, but, you know. All this and that's, stuff. That Sam Weber guy who says, oh, in six months we'll have turned her from the Chinese. She'll be a Russian spy. And it's like, the spy intrigue is just too yeah, much. It's, every, it's, it's spy overload by this stage. It is. So the issue is that Anne is going to confess and therefore Nikos is off the, the hook and he gets Shepard's bar. It's ultimately Nikos's bar in the end. I wonder if he keeps the Shapira sign. <laughs> Shapira, Shapira. <laughs> Anyway, well, like I say I thought he should have had the keys weeks ago, quite frankly. But, there we are. but Anne confesses Eric knows everything by this point. You've got this lovely symbolic thing of the olive tree dying in the courtyard, which I liked. And Chrysarchus is saying, oh, the olive tree's dying. And that's your time increase. Increase? <laughs> increase in greet. Greet! I said increase in greet. In Crete is over. Michael, I'd be very glad if you'd give it to her. Of course. 
But would you not rather give it to her yourself? No. A pity. It is such a pity. I think your olive tree is dying. And you've got you've got actors like Godfrey Godfrey James, Paul Maxwell. You know these are these are yeah. The, the big names in character acting circles. I mean, it's it's a, overall it's kind of just a bit too spyy, really. Considering yeah, what the first and, and too was. many bloody men, Jesus. Mm. Anyway, um, so she has to leave. The question is, will Eric go with her? And he turns up because, on the tarmac. Yeah, like in... What? Because what else is he going to do? Which mm. I think is a bit, it's a bit harsh. Well, yes, yeah, because what else am I going to do? You know. Mm. I may as well. Again, it's sort but, of thing, though, isn't it? Because only in telly, really, can you drop everything and bugger off. It's it's not that easy to do, you know. I mean, all your all your finance and investment and everything would have gone into that bar, you know. In real practical terms, that that's not quite as easy to do as just well, that's sod it, we're off. Yeah, but what I was really interested by is the the intense bond that's developed between Krasakis and Eric, because Eric gives Krasakis this biggest hug before he leaves to say thank you for everything he's done because Krasakis has really gone against his profession and against what he knows is right to help them out and he's obviously pulled strings so that that Anne isn't sent to prison or arrested for the murder of Cully but um they have a connection which is so strong and it it feels to me like love and I don't mean that in a sort of sexual way, no. but it feels like they love each other and that that connection is so And when he watches so the plane take off at the yeah. end, yeah, it's, it is quite moving in, in yeah. some small way, really. Yeah. Goodbye, Michael. And the bar. Your boat. Who cares? You've done so much for me and I've given you nothing. You gave me friendship, and that is a debt one must repay with interest every day. And so, my friend, for all there was, for all there is, I thank you. There's very much a lot of join the dots script writing in that final yeah. episode, which, which kind of I don't know. I I do feel the second the second series really sort of lets it down. I quite like the ambiguity at the ending of the first series. I found all this. I, I'm I'm not much of one for joining dots. Weirdly, yeah. You know these. But again, when it, you think of something like Doctor Who, which I know we we try not to dwell on, but there, there are these these certain areas of fiction where they try and fill in a blank, and I often yeah. feel I prefer the blank. I prefer it to yeah. be ambiguous. And I think that ambiguous ending, you know, they just go off at the end of the ser first series is actually quite poetic and quite abstract. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, And what happened at the end of production was that Michael J. Bird admitted to Andrew Osborne, actually, you were right. I don't know how it could have gone another way. So you were actually right. And this is just me being an over-the-top writer, getting annoyed about my creation, not going exactly how I want it. But yeah, that... Where else could they have taken it? Unless they'd somehow been able to reset and do another sort of community series of an anthology. But um, I find it interesting that it's a BBC Two series, which lends itself more to anthology and plays of the plays of the week sort of feel. 
and it, it's it's kind of neither a drama series or an anthology it kind of is both but also then it becomes a spy drama so it's really hard to classify isn't it it is yes i did for, at one point i even sort of thought do you remember the um in the they got banned but in the early 60s they used to have these gyms in and those kind of advertising shows <laughs> where there would be the, the events would take place but there would this this overarching outside thing would be set in the pub <laughs> and i did right. feel there was a little bit i got a vibe of that going on yeah so it yeah, is yeah. it is i think that the, i think the two series are very different i think the first series is very good uh the second series is interesting but I, it doesn't feel really like the same show, apart from the same actors, same situation. I get that it is the same show, but it just, it sort of feels like they don't really belong together. It, it feels like, oh, this has been popular, we've got to do another series, crikey, what are we going to do? And and it does, in the end, it doesn't quite work as well, for me. Yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I maybe if they had actually let that time interval pass and had them sort of creep back into the harbour a year later and and there'd been fallout and, and whatever that fallout would have been would have maybe made a more interesting show. But again, you know, we, we can't rewrite history. Not one line. You know, we can't, <laughs> we can't, we can't, you know, you can't go back and redo it. I just, I just feel that the, the first year is stronger. Yeah, I agree. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is because I ended up watching a lot of it on YouTube as well, even though I have the sets because I watched a lot of it while I was in the bath. Um, you don't need to know why, um, just because it was just easier to do that because Ryan wasn't going to watch them because he watched the first episode and he was like, "I'm not watching any more of this bullshit." So, you know. <laughs> ah, is this finally what's going to do for the A to Z? Is <laughs> we can't find people to watch the telly with us. I'm going to have to come down and say, "Right, I'm sorry, I'm going to. We're going to go to a hotel and watch television <laughs> <Exactly>. two days." <laughs> um, but the point was, um, I watched it on YouTube. The comments about Wanda Ventum in the the misogyny in the oh, comments horrible. of people on YouTube, oh, just horrendous. Oh, she was so slappable. Oh, she's horrible. Oh, how did he put up with her? And I'm like, what? It was so the comments are so patriarchal and wrong. And it's all about how how did he put up with her? And she was a terrible person in series two. It's like no. I oh don't my understand God. How, how when you read anything on Twitter or whatever, you can't understand why women put up with men at all, quite frankly. Oh, exactly. But I think maybe it's because, you know, spy drama, people people are so used to the women in spy dramas being, having a different kind of role within the story and not having their own agency. It, it, it actually, I, I think Wanda Ventham comes out of this rather well overall, you know. I do too. And I think... The thing about Lotusitas that really gets me, which really makes it very much of its time, but still the issue now really is that he can have a flirtation and sex with whoever he wants really and has had as the character Eric. But she, as soon as she strays from the marital bed and doesn't even get anywhere with Donald Cully because he's useless. But, um, you know, she's kind of damned for that. Mm. And in the terms of the storyline, she's almost not yes. redeemed because of that. And yet well, he's done this multiple times. Well, I'm, I'm always, again, it's one of those strange things about, about Anne's character. Anne very much, you, you actually feel that, that, that there's almost a reluctance even with that. I mean, I know she sort of says that really weird line in the first one. He's the sort of person I could, could, could fall in love with. I haven't, but I could. Yes, but I could. And you yes. kind of think, that's, that's very um, 
procedural, isn't it? Because I don't know, again, is that men writing for women? Is that just one of those weird things that men write about women? I think it could be. And also the fact that it would have to be love for a woman. Why Mm. can't a woman just want to have sex with a man because she wants to have sex with a man? Mm. Because men are allowed to do that with women. Mm. Why can't women just want to have lots of sex with men? Well, I suppose it's 1972 and the the, the norms of society were different. But it it is now it does kind of great very much so. But I also feel that Wanda Bentham actually uh, and Shepard is actually the glue that holds the whole thing together. I agree. I mean... Uh, I don't think you could hang the show just on Ian Hendry's character. That's not because he's bad in it. It's he's just that it. yeah. it's, he's got so many quirks and bad habits and misbehaviours and everything like that. It just wouldn't... You wouldn't have felt you were rooting for him. You actually, in some ways, you root for their relationship. Whereas... Yeah, in, you know, in some ways, although, and you sort of might roll your eyes because of, of things that happen. But actually... I think it's the fact that Anne and him, despite everything being against them, have actually managed to build something over this 10 years, some some kind of loyalty to each other, which actually shines through. And I think more it's her effort that made that happen, not his. He wasn't trying at all. But but she has actually worked hard to build their relationship. And I think also, I can't help but... Imagine that behind the scenes that Wanda Ventum was also holding it together with the sort of person she was. And yeah, I just I just think it's interesting that there was definitely a life imitating art thing going on with the Lotus Eaters. And there's there's more that you see the behind the scenes through it once you just unpick it a bit. She's another of those actors, though, like Barbara Flynn. I could watch in anything, really. I think Wanda Ventum is just brings a certain amount of class. I don't think it's because she's, you know, posh totty or or because of the looks or anything. I think it's actually she's just very good in pretty much everything she does. I mean, she goes on and does all sorts of, you know, fabulous things. She does bring a touch of class to everything she does. And and again, you sort of feel should have led up more more series Mm -hmm. than she actually did. So I would like us to return to Michael J. Bird for Who Pays the Ferryman. If we get as far as W, it seems like a long way off in the distance at the moment. <laughs> well, we're, well we're, I, I was thinking only this morning, it we're, we're, it's 12 months, isn't it? We, we, there's 12 episodes and actually it's 13 months because we've skipped a month. But uh, yeah. we've been doing a uh, series two for a year now. So I suppose Gosh. happy birthday, haters. To us, happy birthday yeah. to us. Let's get a crap cake from Shepherd's Bar. Happy birthday <laughs> to us. <laughs> It's time for us to wave goodbye to Shepherd's Bar or Shapira's Bar. We'll, we'll, I'll, fire, I'll fire up the engines. <laughs> if you could. I like those little cushioned seats. They were they were good. I like the bit whenever he went below and he chained the steering wheel so it was safe. I was like, every time he did that, went to, went to go down below deck, I was thinking, no, go back up quickly. You don't know what you might be um, sailing into. Mm. Anyway. Were you happy to spend time in Crete? That was the important I mean, yes. it was an enjoyable series, like, overall. Yeah, and and start of that holiday boom drama wave that Michael J. Bird would continue to crest with his ongoing series. Indeed, the the quartet is is worth investigating overall. I mean, I we did yeah. uh, I did a show with uh, Steve Thatcher on, on my own show, which where we talked yeah. about the quartet in general. So it's quite nice to go and look at one in in specific terms. Uh huh. Good. So, thank you, Martin. Uh, Always a pleasure. Next time. 
um, that this has been the Lotus Eaters. Um, next time we are on the letter M. Mm. <gasps> Gosh, what delights. M for Martin. Yes, it's Martin's choice. We can do anything that Martin likes. It's Martin, 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 Martin. Sure. I don't think I'm tuning in next episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Interesting M to talk about. Bye. Bye-bye. You take care.